This episode was recorded during the 2023 WJA and SAG after a strikes. Without the hard work of the writers and actors currently on strike, the works covered here would not exist. We fully support the WGA and SAG-AFTRA in their fight for fair treatment and compensation in a grossly unfair and outdated system. Having consulted the FAQs, published by Variety, it clarifies that critics are not on strike and not obligated to stop reviewing movies and TV. The only restriction on podcasts is the same that applies to any medium. SAG-AFTRA members are not allowed to promote struck work. Though we're not members, we would like to state that any praise that constitutes part of our criticism applies to the artists, writers and the actors who created these works. We would like to emphasise that we fully support these strikes and that writers, actors and other artists deserve fair compensation. We also want to see our favourite entertainment return, but we recognise that a fair deal is the only way forward. This podcast is not made with any studio-provided material, support or backing. Please see links in the episode description for ways you can help in the fight for fair treatment. We do not support any studios during these strikes. Come now, listener, you prefer it this way, one reviewer to another. Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of podcasting. Uh, Maybe not the best time to say this, but hey, like, subscribe, share. We we could use all the help we could get. (laughs) If you couldn't tell from my fantastic bit of work up top, today uh, we are reviewing the movie Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Uh, If you're watching on the Silver Screen channel, it'll be a cut-down version if you're watching on Hit or Miss Star Trek. We won't have any of the usual stuff because we've got a big movie to talk about and a lot of guests, which will probably take up most of the time we would normally use. So, yeah, we're looking forward to this. We've... uh, We've been joined by the old crew, shall we say, the, the Discord crew, the the, the A-team, the, the hosts. I don't know what we should call ourselves, but uh, let all me just them. start by introducing all of those and more. Let me the start by introducing crash. regular... <laughs> oh, dear Lord, no. Let me start by introducing regular co-host and David Hasselhoff superfan, DK. Dieter Gross, Reen. <laughs> Ooh, what was that? He's condemning good. foodstuffs. Ah, don't get me started on that scene. We'll get to that, I'm sure. And we are joined by, we are joined by, I, I, I want to say the Discord dames and hope that's not too offensive. So that's first funny. of all, let me introduce Adrian Park Tucker. Welcome back, Adrian. Hello, friends. I am here and happy. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. And uh, of course, Sandra Evanson is joining us back as well. Yes. Hello. I'm so happy to be back discussing this film in particular. Absolutely. And uh, if you're on uh, the visual medium of YouTube, you can see we've all picked our avatars. We've all we've all clearly decided how much we like these individual parts of the film. So there's lots to talk about. So uh, without any further ado, I want to get us straight started and I want to do a very, very quick introduction section uh, that I can basically function as the healing frequencies only part of the track cast. Healing frequencies open, sir. Uh, which is basically to just go around and ask all of you if you can remember 
the first time you saw this film? Uh, did you see it on the big screen? And sort of when, what was your introduction to the Star Trek films? Was it before or after the kind of TV shows and whatnot? Because I've never actually asked anybody. So DK, we'll start with you because I'm intrigued. <laughs> I saw this one at the cinema on release. Wow. I believe it was the first night it was showing Doncaster Dome. Uh, yeah, and absolutely loved it. I, uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of the movie, so yeah, this one was was up there. It was just fantastic. Absolutely loved it. And then I think I went back a couple of uh, a couple of weeks later with uh, taking a, a girl on a first date. So we went to see Trek Six again. Wow, impressive! Yeah. The relationship <laughs> she didn't, didn't. Last, but, the, but my oh, love okay. for the it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Your love for the film was longer lasting. That makes sense. Um, Adrian, what about you? Could you recall the first time you saw it? Yes, also at the cinema. Uh, um, this California girl was stationed in Jacksonville, Florida in the Navy, and uh, that's where I saw it, and I went by myself because uh, nobody would go with me. Because <laughs> I, I didn't have any Star Trek friends at the time, and I didn't want somebody sitting there complaining. So I went by myself, and it was awesome. Yeah, I, I don't recommend going to films like this with uh, a non-Trekkie. I went no. to Star Trek 09 with my brother and he genuinely fell asleep. And I was like, okay. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I'm no, not paying for no a more. ticket nope. to just sleep. <laughs> See, I did the same thing with Insurrection. <laughs> How dare you? You could have at least sent yeah. Nemesis. <laughs> Fair enough. So you, all, you two both saw it at the cinema then. That's cool. The weird thing is you could have went with DK in place of his date if you'd only known each other. <laughs> That's true. We do think alike, don't we? <laughs> Clearly. Exactly. And uh, Sandy, what about you? I actually don't remember the first time I saw this. I really don't remember. Um, it, it definitely, I, I did remember a little bit that it was after the next generation had ended and I went back and did a rewatch and then I stuck the movie in there. That's the last time I had actually, that's the first time, excuse me, I had actually watched it and, and haven't seen it since. So now uh, watching it this time was a real treat again. That's awesome. Fantastic. I can't really remember either, um, just to, to give my kind of two cents when I first saw it. I've got a feeling it was on VHS because I know that I'd seen some of the earlier track films on TV. And my mom had tried watching the motion picture with me when I was too young for it and found it boring. And I know I'd seen like one to four either on TV or with my mom. And I think what happened was I had become into like being a huge trackie and had bought loads of next gen videos and things. And then I bought the movies one to six box set on video. It was like a black box set with those six movies and with the 30 years and beyond Star Trek documentary. Actually, it might have had some of the next gen movies as well, come to think of it. Um, but yeah, I loved that 30 years and beyond, by the way, which has never been repeated on any of the DVD or Blu-ray or anything releases, but you can find it on YouTube. But that's apropos of nothing. So yeah, I probably watched five and six for the first time on that box set because I bought it knowing I liked enough of the movies to justify it. And uh, yeah, that was it. I've still never seen it on the big screen, unfortunately. <laughs> um, like a lot of the Trek movies, I think, like I say, I've seen one, two, uh, and Insurrection onwards, and not anything else. Not relevant to anything. I'm just <laughs> wondering if anyone was curious. So yeah, that's fair enough. And uh, of course, yeah. So <laughs> obviously, we've had your initial impressions. Everybody was uh, obviously liked the film, especially DK. If you went back to see it a second time, so that's uh, yeah, cool. Oh, well, that, it, it, it wasn't just twice. <laughs> 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 Multiple times. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. I, I love the, it. 
I've seen it many a time since that first time on VHS. I've watched it on DVD. I watched it on Blu-ray. I then complained it didn't have the extended cut, and I've now watched it on 4K. Everybody take a drink. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually on this on CDI. It was on two discs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is... Did you not have Betamax? Because I know you did have one of those old Betamax players, right? Uh, the Betamax had kind of been phased out by this point, so oh. yeah, I think I think it just went up to I think Trek I think Trek Four was my last one on Betamax. That's so it's all weird thinking about all of the technologies and things we've had over the years. And it's like a, another world back in nineteen ninety what one ninety two when this came out. Yeah, <laughs> bizarre. Anyway, uh, we'll we'll not mention that again because we all feel really old. So uh, we'll jump into our next section, which is basically we're going to start our analysis of the movie. That's fine. And we're going to begin, as we often do on our film podcast, with the behind-the-scenes section. And much like Spock volunteering Kirk for the mission to the Klingons, I volunteered DK for this, and uh, he and I both gathered as much BTS stuff as we could find, so there's quite a lot. Over to you. Do you uh, want to start the behind-the-scenes section, and we'll see how long it takes? <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks, man. Uh, as usual, the majority of this will be known to most Trekkies out there, and there is just so much. So we've, we've kind of gone for a less is more, even though there's tons of this stuff. So uh, apologies if I've missed so much out. But if you're so inclined, I urge you to check out the extra stuff in You Can. And bear in mind, for those that haven't seen it, there are also spoilers in this, so, you know, We've gone far beyond the moratorium for spoilers, I have a feel, but you never know. So with that in mind, if you're not bothered or don't want it ruined, it may be wise to skip ahead a few minutes. Well, I say a few minutes. It could be like 20. Uh, yeah, so I'll start off. Uh, Nicholas Meyer, the director, he was worried that uh, Shatner would be upset at some of the lines written for the scene when Martyr, disguised as Kirk, fights him. I can't believe I kissed you. Must have been your lifelong ambition. There you go, Adrian. Uh, however, Shatner reportedly loved this. Shatner was less enthused, however, with Nick Meyer for breaking a promise regarding one of his lines. The line in question was when Kirk says, let them die, during the scene when he and Spock are talking after the classified briefing. Shatner wanted to say the line, then gesture as if he didn't mean to say this, and he made Meyer promise to show this on camera. However, in the final cut, after Kirk says, let them die, it just cuts to Spock looking surprised and only goes back to Kirk, cutting over when Kirk gestures with regret. Now, Nick Meyer kind of got on quite a few people's nerves during the uh, the filming and post-production of this. Uh, he and Nimoy uh, dispute who came up with the concept of using the film as an allegory for the fall of Soviet communism, with uh, both of them claiming credit for the idea. It got to a point when Nimoy and Meyer also had a bitter dispute during post-production, with Nimoy preferring his own edit of the film to that of Meyer, who refused to incorporate Nimoy's changes into the final cut. Now, the casting director was uh, Mary Jo Slater, mother of Christian Slater, thus his small role as a communications officer aboard the Excelsior because she knew he was a huge fan of Star Trek. Slater wore the same trousers made for William Shatner in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Quoting Slater, he says, it was honor to get into Shatner's pants. He, uh, he quit during an interview. He also framed his $750 paycheck for his walk on roll. Now going back to Nick Meyer, he met with Gene Roddenberry following a rough cut screening to fulfill Roddenberry's role as creative consultant. Roddenberry, who was in failing health at the time, was bound to a wheelchair and had to be hooked up to an oxygen tank. 
Despite his frailty, Roddenberry demanded certain cuts to the film and, according to Mayer, engaged him in a heated argument. Roddenberry died several days after the meeting and Mayer has expressed deep regret since over his behaviour in the meeting, not realising just how sick Roddenberry really was at the time. Now, a subplot to this film was to show that even in the 23rd century, humans hadn't totally shed their bigotries and prejudice. James Doohan had a line about that Klingon bitch, but uh, Michelle Nichols refused to say this in reference to the Klingons. Yeah, but would you let your daughter marry one of them? The, uh, the line was dropped because she refused to say it. According to Nicholas Meyer, uh, Brock Peters found Admiral Cartwright's words during the briefing seemed to be so offensive he needed several takes to get them all out. And in a similar vein, uh, Michelle Nichols also refused to speak the line, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, an intentional reference to the uh, 1967 Sidney Poitier movie. Uh, which is heard before the Klingons visit to the Enterprise. The line was instead given to Walter Koenig. Now, uh, just bear with me a sec, Mike. I've just got to get these others up. No problem. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd heard about that. I heard especially about um, Nicholas Mayer's mentioned a few times that he says all of his frustrations with Roddenberry, who, as we know, is kind of renowned for you know, wanting to interfere with these things. Yeah. Uh, he says all of his frustrations kind of basically came out in that meeting and it turned into a proper stand-up argument and he massively regrets it. He's mentioned that a few times in interviews now. But yeah. I will say that supposedly the reason that there are two cuts of the film is because at least a couple of the things that Roddenberry wanted removed were uh, taken out and that's why they are only in the extended cut because they apparently were things that Roddenberry didn't agree with, like the militarization of Starfleet. Uh, yeah. Like idea. So there you go. Fair enough. Back to you. <laughs> yeah. Now, the blue blood found that the dinner scene was so disgusting that actors had to be bribed to eat it. Each actor was offered $20 for every bite. Shatner did it and won $240 before throwing up. According to Lennon Dimo, it was chunks of squid treated with blue food colouring. Reportedly, Shatner was the only member of the cast able to swallow any of it. And the first time Shatner ate the coloured squid, he turned and looked right at Nick Meyer and said, Where's my 20? Mayer called Cut and pulled out the 20 and gave it to Shatner. <laughs> now, sticking with Kirk, the film confirms Kirk's middle name, which had previously uh, been established in the animated series episode BEM as Tiberius for the first time in live-action production. It's also the first canon instance of Sulu's first name, Hikaru, Japanese for Shining, being stated. Prior to the film, it was commonly used in the novels and repeated, reportedly approved by Gene Roddenberry and George Takei, but had never been made official. Uh, Valeris uh, was meant to be Savic. Catral didn't want to play her. Uh, Kirstie Alley wouldn't come back, and Curtis was never asked. Uh, Catral chose the name Valeris as a supposition on the name Ares, meaning goddess of strife in uh, in the Greek legends, supposedly, you know, to give some reference to her character. Now, although this is the, fir the final Star Trek film to feature the entire original series cast, only Michelle Nichols and DeForest Kelly make their final official appearances in this film. Chang's demand, don't wait for the translation, Answer Me Now, is a reference to Adlai Stevenson's similar demand of Soviet Union representative Valerian Zorin at the United Nations during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, according to George Takei, it was supposed to be the Excelsior that detects the, uh, the bird of prey, hence the Chartian gaseous anomalies mission referenced in the prologue. 
Shatner apparently objected and wanted the Enterprise to heroically save the day, hence the line being switched. Now, originally, The Undiscovered Country was a possible title for Star Trek II. The actual Shakespeare quote alluded to death, not the future. The practice effect was revolutionary and went on to be used multiple times, including famously for the destruction of the Death Star in the Star Wars Special Editions, as well as, I believe, the Stargate movie. Uh, the welcome speech that Kirk McCoy and the others, uh, the other new prisoners receive upon arriving at Rutherpente is an homage to the speech made by Colonel Saito to the British POWs from the Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, and the chorus heard in the background of many scenes on the soundtrack, mainly those on Rutherpente, say to be or not to be in Klingon. The... Uh, the set used for the Federation President's Office is a, just a redress of the same set used for 10 Forward on uh, Next Generation. And finally, the Klingon, translating Chang's words into English, is Kla, played by Todd Bryant, the renegade captain from the previous movie, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Though this isn't said in the film, several sources state the character was demoted to translator duty as punishment for his unsanctioned attack on Kirk that's what I've got for this one awesome and uh, that's all we've got time for this week so just no I'm joking actually wasn't <laughs> that wasn't too bad it was only like what 10 minutes I think so that uh, yeah could have been uh, much worse yeah so it's a weird one I'm sure we'll mention it but the thing that springs to my mind is that when I did a little bit of research about um the character of Valeris and how initially Nicholas Mayer had insisted that he wanted to use Savic, which admittedly would have been way more powerful with the kind of spoiler alert, the betrayal at the end. Um, but for whatever reason, he insisted on using Kirstie Alley instead of Robin Curtis, maybe because he directed Wrath of Khan. So yeah, Robin Curtis wasn't approached. And there's debate, which we'll probably never know the answer to now that she's sadly passed away, but there's debate as to why Kirstie Alley didn't come back. Some people said she was filming something that clashed and some people said she refused to be, uh, to, to, fit back into the uniform as she put on weight and didn't want to look embarrassed or something. So, as I say, we don't know what the truth of that is. <laughs> from my research on this, Nicholas Meyer pissed off a lot of the people. Oh, yeah. yeah on yeah. this movie. For sure. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why there's like four or five credited writers and everything on here as well. So, yeah. Um, didn't go quite so smoothly as Wrath of Khan seems to have, at least. So, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a big deal, though. It was, it was going to be the last... Uh, original series film it came off the back of a disappointing shall we say star trek 5 so i think people were aware there was a lot to a lot at stake and it had already been kind of cancelled by the studio heads and stuff and then re-put back on the schedule and everything and at one point it was going to be a starfleet academy thing to save money on the cast and recast them in much the way that Nine eventually did so yeah it's a tumultuous journey to get to the screen which hopefully or thankfully i, I don't think was represented in the final product so Anyway, um, yeah, so, yeah, that's cool. We, we know a little bit more, hopefully, about Star Trek 6 now, or at least uh, we were, you know, enjoying hearing fascinating stuff that we knew before. Um, so, yeah, as I said, we, we're going we're gonna to go into our usual breakdown, and as, it, as we often do on both of our podcasts, we're going to break this into sections rather than break down the film sort of scene by scene because it's assumed that you've seen it. Um, so, again, those sections are things like writing and plot, acting, directing, special effects, music and sound. Then we'll give our favourite character moment and line, we'll maybe give a hit and a miss each, uh, as I've started doing on the Trek podcast. 
uh, of uh, the audience for our incredibly large audience response to this. We had a huge response, so thank you to that. And then, of course, we'll give our conclusion and our score out of five stars or five Starfleet Deltas or five Klingon symbols or whatever it is this week that I choose. So, <laughs> so without uh, without any more waffling from me, I'm going to jump into the first section, which I, I wanted to start with the writing and the plot, because there's quite a lot to say here. Uh, so the first thing is, obviously, as uh, DK alluded to, there's some debate about whose idea this was, but the movie is quite obviously a Cold War allegory. Uh, I remember in the aforementioned video set that I had, they, it, they phrased it as, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the writers decided to drop the Berlin Wall in space, which was the Klingon neutral zone, and kind of uh, addressed that. Um, they also mentioned that the Praxis destruction was kind of an, an oblique reference to Chernobyl and how that had kind of crippled the, the communist uh, Soviet Republic, as it were, at that time. So... Uh, not something I picked up on as a kid, but it's an interesting thing to look at now. Uh, and I'm curious if you, any of you guys kind of picked up on these allegories or saw any of this like throughout the film uh, and what you make of it. Um, let's see. We haven't heard from you in a while, so we'll go to you, Adrian, <laughs> I guess. Oh, yeah, quite clearly with the especially like uh, right away with the red costume when Gorkhan walked in. I was like, oh, yeah, they're really trying to set up the color scheme and stuff like that. The bad guys. I thought that was pretty cool. The red and those shoes, uh, fabulous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the shoes. I mean, it just, you know, it really, really, I love that costume. I mean, if like we could talk about the costume the whole time, but uh, I oh, thought yeah. right away with the setting up the colors that it was kind of like a Soviet thing like that. For sure, yeah, it was definitely the Klingons as kind of communists, I suppose, and uh, along with, as I said, some of the racial overtones that I'm sure we'll get more into that were quite uncomfortable for certain members of the cast and can be uncomfortable to watch in places as well. Yeah, so, as they should uh, have been. There's a really uncomfortable line with the bad guys saying even the top-of-the-line models can even talk. I was like, that's so, that's just so bad. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah one of many, but as I say, we'll we'll probably get to that when we hit up the uh, the actual instances. But one mm -hmm. thing I didn't kind of put in the behind the scenes thing that I did want to mention in terms of this allegory is that supposedly the makeup on David Warner for Gorkon uh, is designed to invoke both Gorbachev, uh, you know, reinforcing this allegory, but also Abe Lincoln uh, to kind of reinforce the I, I guess idea of peace and yeah, the spirit <laughs> union, unifying. Yeah, and the name Gorkon was. Uh... Gorbachev oh. and Lincoln. Oh, my, yeah. my mind is blown right now. <laughs> yeah, I read that <laughs> during the research as well. Yeah, that's just so cool. Oh, wow. I, I, it's really, and and they thought it would be so obvious that at first they didn't want to try it, but see, still people didn't know. Isn't that awesome? That blows my mind. Even though when it's I read awesome. about the makeup thing, it did. I didn't put together that was the name, but wow. Awesome. Regarding no, that, awesome. I did also. Um, notice that it went a little bit further too when they were talking about we were going to um are we going to dismantle the entirety of starfleet and they said no mm. that you know it will continue on and i do remember that there was discussions back then about you know pulling back on military funding because you know the biggest threat was you know, neutralized. They were our friends now. And so, and of course there was the old guard who were absolutely terrified at the thought of, of that and any sort of change. Um, so it kind of did, the allegory continued on. 
that's true. Yeah, we still see that now. A lot of the old guard are terrified of, particularly like the communism or any kind of alternate political view and stuff. But again, we'd be here all day talking about that, and we'd end up talking about everything that's got nothing to do with this movie, I suspect. But it's kind of, uh, it's, I guess, sad but fitting how timely it still is, because you can still look at this and apply it to a lot of things, metaphorically speaking. But yeah, um, I did note as well that I, maybe I, I wasn't really around or wasn't at least, you know, compostmentous enough to know what was going on in the world. At that time, I was only about nine or ten years old, so I wasn't aware if this was true or not, but I kind of made a note that they mention the Klingons can't sort of save themselves from this environmental disaster because they, all of their money goes towards their military budget. And I was like, is that something that was kind of true of the, the communist republics at the time, maybe? Um, you guys would know better than me. It was alluding, I believe, to uh, Chernobyl with regards yeah. to, yeah. And certainly the oligarchy was part of, of why it affected every, them so badly. Yeah. Plus the charge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you said it. Um, I did want to bring up one thing that um, actually came up uh, in a conversation that I had with Sandra probably like a day ago before I watched the movie, uh, which is that you said, Sandra, you didn't remember uh, Star Trek VI being quite so funny. And I said, I did, so I'd actually made like a note, specifically like a little section of all of those moments when I was like, it's surprising to me that there's a really light touch and some good comedic comic relief, like literally, the relief is the word in this kind of what could be a heavy movie. And uh, so I was curious if you had anything you wanted to bring up about it first, because I don't want to step on uh, on what you've got. So oh, yeah, I'm I... for that. <laughs> I did write down some of those moments. Um, um, one, uh, some of them not necessarily uh, intentionally, but um, in the very beginning, uh, when they're uh, called to that, uh, you know, top secret conference, they don't know why they're there. And um, when Kirk sees Spock is there, he looks betrayed from the very beginning. But when he learns that he was volunteered for the for the mission and uh spock says i personally vouch for you and he says you personally vouched for me it was just so funny and it carried uh so much betrayal and and passion behind it but um that was one moment that i thought was was really funny um I have so many notes here and I wish I had pulled them out by things that I thought were, um, well, I'll, uh, I'll go around if you want and ask the others as well, because they may have something that they wanted to, to kind of chuck in and contribute that specifically is memorable to them. Um, so, Adrian, do you have anything that springs out as like a particularly funny moment that you th- that gave you like a good moment of relief or that you actually thought was just a really cool joke or <laughs> hilarious moment? Well, uh, this would have been part of my, uh, my my um appreciation of the directing uh was um transitioning there's some funny transitioning moments but i guess the funniest one to me when i saw in the theater because i laughed out loud uh and i still do is when uh spock is like well if i know james kirk he's planning his escape and cuts immediately to the brawl in europe prison where he's literally just been punched so that (laughs) <laughs> that gives me, you know, that gives me the. That's the cool. I didn't even. Uh, I didn't even yeah. think about that because yeah, I didn't yeah. think of registering it with the direction. But you're absolutely right. It is a lot of. Um, and one of the things that I've got down as writing, I suppose, is technically kind of direction as well, which is the idea that they're going to reveal everything to Kirk just as he's getting beamed up, 
and he's basically swearing the entire way through the transporter beam and then just gets there. He's like, Spock, you couldn't have waited two more seconds and just right. the glorious. Would, would you like to go back? No, it's cold. <laughs> well, it would have been cool to see in the script, like how they wrote this out, like the part yeah. where uh bones you know he's he's a funny character i mean he has all of his lines but when he oh, he's yeah. asked during the trial you know um how are you or whatever and, and what health are you in or yeah what health are you in and then um and he's like oh i'm doing you know aside from a little arthritis and there's one klingon that laughs and you know up in the stands during the trial and i thought that was kind of cool i like to see it's the how way they... that mccoy responds like he's actually yeah. like a stand-up comedian getting yeah he's looking up there Ooh, <laughs> I, have a, I have a fan <laughs> no you don't <laughs> you're yeah, going exactly. to yeah they want to kill you <laughs> yeah. mccoy is great in this movie yeah, especially really for that is. particular comic relief yeah. they gave him a lot of really good lines and you just need them because it's kind of uh, some heavy aspects to this film yeah one Absolutely McCoy line better. I liked was when they were first arriving there on Ruapente and he he runs into that really tall alien. He says, oh, my God. And the alien's just getting more and more agitated. And McCoy goes, he's definitely on about something, Jim. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And we already kind of, we acted it out before recording, uh, but yeah, just that hilarious scene of Kirk saying, I'm lucky that thing had knees. That wasn't his knee. Not everyone has their genitals in the same place. And Kirk just basically telling McCoy, ah, go and see if you can do anything for them and let them know we don't hold a grudge. And McCoy's like, well, suppose they hold a grudge. You know? <laughs> so again, just little exchanges like that, which just give you, it's right off the back of a particularly kind of tense fight and it just gives you that extra bit of levity and kind of I don't know, fun that uh, keeps things moving along, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, DK, over to you. Anything that springs out to you about the, these moments? It's again, it's McCoy, and it's not so much the line, it's just the delivery uh, towards the end of the movie where Chang's just constantly quoting Shakespeare, and McCoy said, just give real money if he just shut up. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> a, such a stressful scene when they're doing uh, the surgery <laughs> yeah. on, the, on the torpedo. That's That's a really good one. I do like it as well, where, where you know, Spock says, "Would you assist me?" and, and McCoy goes, "Fascinating." I did, I did like that. And, <laughs> I was uh, just going to reference that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not McCoy related, too. and it's pure panto, and it's played for laughs. But the uh, Russian epic of Cinderella scene. <laughs> Are you familiar with Russian epic of Cinderella? If the shoe fits, and then Crewman Dax just has massive <laughs> feet that would never fit into boots. Yeah. I really like Dax. He seemed like such a good kid. I really want more yeah. of that particular Dax. <laughs> I, sh I should clarify, by the way, that it's already been uh, addressed that this is not a previous host of the Dax symbiont from DS9. Right, just right. a coincidence. Because <laughs> people automatically leapt to that fan conclusion. So that's had to be shot down, unfortunately. Um, yeah, fair enough. Yet another McCoy line was uh, when they were in the bunk beds and... Uh, uh, the shapeshifter played by Iman, she kisses him, and then when she leaves, McCoy's yeah. like, what is it with you anyway? <laughs> Kirk says, you still, still think, think you're finished? More than ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's incredibly just, quotable, this film. Anything from else that has, has come up from you, Sandra, I'll give you a chance to look through, see if you could pull some notes maybe before I, I go into my... I did pull two more out, and then... Um, and then okay. I'd like to hear yours. I hope I don't steal any more of yours. That's fine. Um, I have quite a lot. So. Oh, good. 
I um, thought it was hilarious uh, at the diplomatic function when they were all unfolding their napkins and it just basically looked like an infomercial for cloth, cloth napkins, like none of the Klingons where one guy even dropped it for like no apparent reason. He just couldn't hang on to the delicate cloth or something. Yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. And then um, the other part was another kind of subtle thing, kind of like the one Klingon laughing at McCoy's joke um, when the shapeshifter there in the elevator uh, going up to the mines and she says, because they don't allow women. And then she turns and she goes, <laughs> the, just that one chuckle there in the elevator. Yeah. Subtle, but really funny. What, what did exactly. you find, Mike? I'm excited to hear. Well, just took a lot of things that I said kind of helped. Some of them aren't like obvious jokes, but I think they just added to the levity. So anything from like the idea of... Um, drinking Romulan ale and then Kirk when he's giving his kind of uh, our manners weren't exactly Emily Post log <laughs> immediately just cuts into by the way note to the galley Romulan ale no longer to be served at diplomatic functions <laughs> it's just right. such a little cool moment or um uh, on a similar note when they get back to the bridge and they're like oh you picking up any kind of strange neutrino type emissions check off and you're like only the size of my head <laughs> Chekhov is also he gets almost nothing to do but all of his lines are kind of like gold when he does get them and kind of knocks it out of the park um, I like the idea that they're so clueless about what Valeris is talking about when they're like oh we're being ordered back to Starfleet and then she gives them that whole back in the day people threatened by industrialization threw their wooden shoes called Sabo into machines hence the word sabotage <laughs> and then he, she's like oh uh, yeah oh, ships are completely damaged and Chekhov's oh great I mean oh too bad yeah. <laughs> and likewise when scotty later is like uh, mr scott the warp drive is uh is not functioning how long will it take there's nothing wrong with the bloody thing mr scott if we get sent back we won't be able to help and he's like oh could take weeks uh. <laughs> um let's see i've mentioned most of those other ones you've already mentioned it but then again uh the other brilliant one and i'm hoping i'm not stealing anybody's favorite line for when we get to it but again it's mccoy of course it is um at the very end of the movie once again we've saved civilization as we know it and the good news is they're not gonna prosecute <laughs> it's just, just <laughs> such a nice sly reference to the way that they saved the world in star trek 4 and then immediately went got put on trial <laughs> but anyway um awesome cool so that uh, that'll handle the kind of comedic side of things i wanted to uh switch it up a little bit and go to the kind of the, the scenes that we were you know we alluded to earlier the, the heavy scene where they basically arrive meet the klingon ship chronos one and they beam them onto the ship for dinner and things get very tense so before again i go into any of my notes about that i don't want to step on any toes do any of you want to jump in any thoughts on that particular everything like i said from arriving to the ship to uh to the klingons beaming away and everyone being a bit exhausted by it it's uh, it's very tense that 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 scene where Cronus uh, One turns up. I mean, you have to get used to it, but that ship looks bloody beautiful as well. It really <laughs> does. <laughs> yeah, it does. I know yeah. you love it. There's, I do have a note about that, and I wasn't sure if to put it in either direction or special effects. But the scene when it's purely perspective, but it just looks like Cronus One is dwarfing the Enterprise <laughs> when they're like almost side by side, but it looks so much bigger. I was like, well, that's it. Just deliberately looks intimidating, you know. Um, yeah, I think that David Wagner um, coming Warner. in Warner. I'm sorry, of course, coming in as Gorkon in that first scene. Uh, just you know, at, at first you're kind of like, oh man, he's suspicious. But you know, for me personally, I got a good feeling about the character, a good feeling about his intentions. 
Um, but because because at the end, he, when he says, uh, I can see we have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I, I, I think he, he says, his um, whole sorry. his whole existence in this movie, I thought was great. Oh, yeah, I mentioned that when we get to the acting, so I'll save it for when we get there for my praise for Warner. But in terms of writing for the character, as you can see, I, I really love the line because it hits home very uh, powerfully about the themes of the movie when he goes to Kirk after the dinner, just before they beam out, and just goes... You don't trust me, do you? I don't blame you. If there is to be a brave new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time now, like, there speaks a full-on statesman, really, doesn't it? You know, who's yeah. understood the uh, the idea, and you know, it's not going to be easy. But mm -hmm. <laughs> and you wouldn't think it would be a Klingon that's so diplomatic, so you know that it's just honestly a good yeah. person or not person. And, yeah, and <laughs> related to that, I mean, I think that basically adds so much to when Kirk says, you know, when he and Spock are both lamenting their mistakes, as it were, and Kirk just says it's. Gorkon had to die before I realized how prejudiced I was. And you genuinely sense regret from, from Shatner in that performance bit. Again, not to get too far just into acting, but I was like, oh, that's you can see why Gorkon in years to come would have both Federation and Klingon ships named after him for being right. this kind of architect of peace, you know. Really uh, that's just a nerdy trek kind of thought about that anyway. So uh yeah, that, that's as I said, a lot of kind of uncomfortable racial overtones that I don't think I noticed as a kid, which now are kind of very on the knuckle, including, as mentioned, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was given to Chekhov because Nichelle Nichols understandably didn't want to say it. Uh, but also, when I think it's just when they beam aboard and the two crewmen who ultimately end up doing the, the sabotage just say, like, oh, they all look the same and, oh, the, the smell and everything. And I'm like, this is just really uncomfortable for me because you don't want to think of Starfleet being that, like, bigoted. Um, mm -hmm. But I also didn't notice that it's, I presume it's the same two people that Valeris basically recruits because she bumps into them there and is like, ah, don't you have work to do? And I was like, huh, if you're paying attention to the like mystery of this thing, you could easily work out that she basically recruited them because she's like, ah, oh, you agree with our purpose? Well, here we go. This is what we're going to do. We're going to beam aboard the ship and blah, blah, blah. So then, of course, kills them. Yeah, same guys. <laughs> I do love the, uh, the logic she displays later on at that where she says, you know, plus they conspire with us to kill their own chancellor. How trustworthy can they be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, insurrection, um, an insurrection, you know, uh, the rebels, yeah. bad rebels. When it was right after that, though, when she bumped into them, what, when they were saying those those horrible things that they all look alike, only the, the top of the line models can talk. <sighs> and then in that next scene, it's um, showing how, I, I don't think they were trying on purpose so hard, or, or maybe they were trying to prove that they were cultured by taking something that was revered in human earth culture mm. and showing that they maybe even had a better understanding of the material or, or a better grasp of the material than the humans did themselves, which is also a little bit pompous, but it's almost like they were trying too hard to, um, to prove themselves that they weren't just, um, what their entourage was, which was the guys who couldn't even hold on to a cloth napkin. And they certainly weren't, yeah. you know, quoting Shakespeare, which I also thought was interesting given the different um, uh, ridge pattern and, and basic structure of the makeup they used on uh, 
Chang and Gorkhan as opposed to the rest of the retinue or or everybody in the court later, all the rest of the Klingons in the court later that grunt, so to speak. I do know the reason for it when it comes to General Chang is because Christopher Plummer basically said he would only take the role if they agreed that he would have minimal Klingon makeup on, which is why he, he there's barely anything. It's like the eye patch and a little ridge right at the top of the head. Um so yeah, he, he didn't want to be in makeup for hours on end, basically. An eye patch nailed straight into the skull, mind you. Yeah, bolts and yeah. leather and bolts. <laughs> exactly. Wow. But uh, did you did you notice as well? Because this is something I never noticed, even you know watching in high definition. Uh, but supposedly, if you look close enough, the three pins that hold the eye patch in all have the Klingon insignia carved I in. Didn't <laughs> no, that's your 4K man. I didn't even see it. It was just I read about it and I was like the makeup oh. or whoever it was, the props guy did it. And it was never intended to be seen by anybody. It was just like a kind of like fun labor of love type thing. I oh, I'll just that. do this. And, but yeah, just a weird little touch. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> um, what was I? Yeah, so I was going to say, I wanted to get into the kind of dinner scene because I absolutely love it because it's so, it's it's surprisingly two-sided, if you know what I mean. It doesn't sort of take one side or the other. And yet all of the kind of, the verbal tennis game, almost all, almost all of those kind of things that are shot hit home in some really powerful way. So it's just it's it's a glorious thing to watch as a fan of like cinema, I guess, without wanting to sound pompous. But yeah, like the way that it starts off with the Klingons, as you said, I, I'm I'm still a little unsure as to the whole point of using all the Shakespeare in this film. And I read it a bit differently to you. Your idea was like showing we could be cultured. I kind of see it as the mocking human culture. Is like, oh, this is the best you've got, and this is your dainty kind of, especially the way Chang uses it, which is just like, oh, your favorite author, and then using it to almost like jokes or like taunts. You know, I don't think there's any particular respect here. <laughs> you know because I mean? they were uh, just like one after another. So, yeah, I see what you mean. That's just the way that you can read these things. Certainly, Gorkon doesn't seem to be that way and seems to genuinely be like, oh, Shakespeare and the original Klingon is great and whatever, even though that's you know, faintly amusing. But, um, I really yeah, then like. I think it's just Sorry. Chang that is rude yeah. and kind of cruel and in his own. So he's going to be like mean and sarcastic with Shakespeare. But I think that Gorkhan was legit. Yeah. Well, what do you think that Chang is kind of like, I've mentioned this in the Discovery review a couple of weeks ago, that Chang is the kind of the Klingon idea that I kind of like that if they don't like you, they will actually be overly nice. And that's them like being insulting, if you know what I mean. Because if they like you and they have respect for you, they'll straight up, you know, they'll face you warriors to warrior and they'll they'll stand toe to toe and they'll, you know, know that you can take any aggression. If they don't like you, they'll be like, oh, you, I'll be so polite. Ooh. And then well, you might not realize it, but they're actually basically insulting you with that. And Chang, I get a lot of that from Chang, especially in the way that he, like he, there might be some genuine revering of Kirk, but I do sense that there's a lot of kind of like, oh, Kirk, <laughs> the legend, eh? <laughs> kind of thing, you know? Um, but yeah. Um, in terms or maybe of, like, back he sees to it as his chance to best him. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, absolutely. But now back to the, the kind of dinner scene in question. Um, the way that they kind of immediately start addressing the bigger things and the Klingons kind of just say, you know, that there's, we're, we're kind of, screwed here effectively paraphrasing obviously um because we're not going to be able to find a place of our own in in sort of your your world and i do believe all planets have a sovereign claim to inalienable human rights inalienable if you could only hear yourselves human rights my very name is racist 
Federation is no more than a homo sapiens only club. It, when you think about it, especially around this era, it really kind of is. And it's a it's a fair criticism that she makes about like, you know, even the species that the Federation have sort of assimilated into them, like Vulcans and stuff are almost human in, in a lot of ways. They're certainly more human and easier to, to deal with. But like the Afrosian really, president. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um but yeah, I thought that was like a surprisingly fair criticism from her. And I was like, oh wow, the Klingons kind of come out with this looking the best, but then to be or not to be, that is the question which preoccupies our people, Captain Kirk. We need breathing room. Earth, Hitler, nineteen thirty eight. I beg your pardon. That's, yeah, yeah you just say, oh, shit. <laughs> it's like nobody walked away from this exchange changed in any way. If, if anything, maybe even more entrenched. Although Kirk does have, you know, his little soliloquy right after where he, he admits their own fault and why it went so badly. Yeah, I think Kirk grows the most, I think, during this film. And I love his arc in this film. But again, I don't want to step on things I might be seeing a little bit later. Um, but I mean, yeah, to, to your point, it, they kind of even emphasize that because Spock is kind of the neutral observer that when they they start like bitching about the Klingons almost and to her, it's like, did you see the way they were acting? Oh, no table manners. And Spock's like, I ain't. doubt that we yeah. would have, you know, <laughs> I doubt we would have uh, dignified ourselves particularly well in the annals of history either. And, you know, <laughs> for a Vulcan, that's probably the level of frustration you'll get. But you can tell inside he's kind of like, none of us <laughs> came out of that particularly well. Why can't you get on? You know, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I do kind of like the um, the tense the tenseness of the scenes when you kind of see that all the heads of state, as it were, are being advised to basically go to war, and everybody's telling them to do this, and they have to be both the Federation president and the Klingon Chancellor at various times. It's just like there's never going to be a better time if, if we strike, we can do it. So that you really feel like these peace talks are hanging by a thread. <laughs> and um, that kind of alludes to that one time when. Um, something had happened in the missile launch system and it appeared as if the United States had launched an attack against the Soviet Union and only this oh. one singular cool head prevailed and stopped all that war from happening. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that, but that's intriguing. Yeah. So that has a real world kind of allegory as well. Yeah. Awesome. Only uh, just now wow. thought of that. So many layers to <laughs> I do like the kind of mystery aspect and the way that it's Spock who kind of sorts out, you know, by quoting Sherlock Holmes, ha, uh, sorts out, you know, there must be a bird of prey that can fight a well-cloaked and we have to get to the bottom of this and we've got to identify the assassins. They'll have these boots that must still be here. And, you know, I kind of like that it turns into almost a little bit of a detective story for a while there um, because it all makes sense and it doesn't seem like there's anything silly uh, in those scenes. So I kind of, plus I kind of just love Spock when he's when he's being Spock and doing cool things and sciencing. So. And literally uh, quoting Sherlock, yeah. So yeah. it's very much yeah. <laughs> a detective story, yeah. I think by this point we got to we pretty much got to a point with the movies where they were all kind of space adventures, with the exception being like you know Voyage Home's comedy aspect. But this, you go from a political thriller, it's a whodunit, as well as the space adventure, and I, I love that. It's there's so many layers on this one. Absolutely, yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Way. There's like. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like a comedy, a detective story, a kind of political, uh, I don't know what the word is, but sort of along the lines of Captain America, the Winter Soldier was praised for being like a political thriller, I guess. Um, there's hints of that in there as well. And as you say, there is still a good bit of like space action and starship fights and stuff at the end. So, yeah, awesome stuff. Let me see. Uh, so any other thoughts about these kind of the mystery and the way that that plays out from any of you? 
I just thought that um, it was interesting from the very beginning, and, and this has already been touched on a few times, how uh, when you go back on rewatch, just seeing how um, the various parties were pushing everything towards um, towards war, towards, you know, mm -hmm. they chose violence in every situation and how those cooler heads did kind of prevail. But, but how going back watching it, you see all these players doing that where it didn't even occur to you in first watching. That's very Absolutely. superb writing. Yeah. And I'll mention it later when we get to it, but that's even more enhanced in the kind of extended cut. Because that is basically the scenes are just, you know, go to war. We're going to have to do it. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, I can't think what else. Oh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to make note of because I just found them a little weird. And I wasn't sure if you guys noticed or cared or had any thoughts on it. And the first one is uh, Kirk's log when they are on trial. And they play the log about I've never trusted Klingons because of the death of his boy. Um, it's weird to me. And I always notice this from the first viewing that that log isn't the same quote that he gave at the start of the movie. Um, it's slightly but importantly different. Like, I think in the original quote, he says, I've never trusted Klingons, I never will. I could never forgive them for the death of my boy. And in the way, one that they play at the trial, he says, I have never been able to forgive them for the death of my boy. And I'm like, is this a hint that this is doctored in some way? Or is it just like the filmmakers forgot the line or what? <laughs> I don't so, think yeah. I've ever picked it's, up on that. Yeah, it's... It's weird because I pick it. I, I kind of get the whole idea that the hint is well, somebody has to have got that log, and that's how Kirk works out like Valeris. How long were you waiting outside? But I was like, it's not even the same quote. And am I supposed to notice and care about that, or is it just one of those things I'm supposed to put down to the director not remembering or whatever? I don't know. I did like that there were things related to the detective story aspect. There were moments that you could pick up that might have been hints to things. So even Martia when she um, she's talking about, you know, she's obviously led them out and betrayed them, the shapeshifter, and uh, they're talking about, you know, these things and what, what are you and everything, and uh, she says, I thought I would assume a pleasant shape, which is a Shakespeare quote. That uh, is that a hint that she's working with Chang? Could you potentially have picked up on that early and been like, aha, I see what that is? Or again, is it just a matter of, well, we've got enough Shakespeare in the film, let's took a bit more. <laughs> um, anyway. See, I didn't pick up on that either. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I've just had to read too much Shakespeare in my English. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, I do. I have to mention this because it uh, comes up. I know it comes up in the audience response section and it's always bugged me as well. I really don't like that they make Uhura look really inept with not understanding Klingon. Like, that's that the whole horrible. job. I yeah, she, Michelle really didn't like that either. So yeah. unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did read and Michelle just didn't want to do it and really fought against it. And I get the humour aspect and I get, like, you're having to not rely on universal translator. But again, that's Uhura's whole job. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like it would have been so it. cool if she just answered back and it it was her accent or something that she was worried about. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's a scene in one of the reboot movies where Zoe Saldana's Uhura does actually speak perfect Klingon. And I'm sure there's probably plenty of scenes in Strange New Worlds of the uh, Celia Rose Gooding Uhura doing it. So it just now it seems like even more jarringly like, why did you have to make the character look silly here? But and again, a disservice to her. Absolutely, especially for the last sort of appearance, you know. But at least in the very beginning, when all the guys were talking about boats and retirement, she was talking about chairing a, a seminar Supposing. at the university. Yeah, that was good at least. 
Absolutely. I, I did love Scotty's line there as well. Maybe they're going to retire us early. Yeah, oh, it's, it's me. I've just bought a book. Yeah, it's it's, it's the way they, they say them sometimes. It just comes across <laughs> as hilarious because they're, you're so familiar with the characters by this point. They're, they're, you know, they're like a family kind of thing. Yeah, I said that. I think the film, the film does rely a lot on kind of your awareness of these characters and your kind of comfort and familiarity with them to... Because I, I do wonder how you would kind of respond to it if this was the first thing you'd seen, and I doubt it would have the same kind of impact. Because especially the subtle humor, <laughs> especially yeah. McCoy, yeah. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. Um, how did you? What did you think about the idea of? This seems a little simplistic to me, but the idea that they basically entrap Valeris by saying we're taking notes from these two people who you think you've killed. Kind of oh thing. my God, that was terrible. When, since when do they ever explain why they need someone to go somewhere over the speakers? The fact that she fell for this is highly illogical. Well, they did mention that they needed it to be a court reporter or stenographer or something because they needed to take official legal statements, which I guess would kind of make sense. But then they had but, to say the two persons, same official legal statements of this person and this person. Yeah. That was exactly, over yeah. the top. And it does kind of, yeah, it does kind of stand out that Valeris really wouldn't be dumb enough to not think this could potentially be a trap. But, you know, I, I kind of forgive it just for the sheer awesomeness of the scene that follows, particularly with Spock and how absolutely betrayed he is. And he actually lets out genuine display of anger. Mm -hmm. you know? um, his, yeah, emotion. He can't control it for a minute there. Yeah, the, the slapping away of the phaser is just like, whoa. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Um, right. So the last thing I have on my notes with regard, well, I have a couple of things. First of all, I kind of have to bring it up, even though I don't like it, because it's probably my least favorite part of the movie, but the kind of forced mind melds on Valeris to get the answers. It's really uncomfortable, and it's not some, especially because it's Spock, who's like my favorite character, and it's just incredibly invasive, and I don't like that this was the only way they kind of had to... But I think that's the, the point. Answers. I think, you know, you, you, it's supposed to be uncomfortable and, it's you know, it stresses it that by the end, you just, yeah, you're squirming yourself. I just don't imagine, like, these characters doing something like that, especially if you look on it on, like I said, the film itself is operating on, like, metaphor and allegory such a lot that to look at this in any of those terms just makes it even worse. And there's no like there's no real way to justify it. They're, you're either justifying torture or you're getting into like areas of you know consent and stuff, which are going to get way too uncomfortable. And I'm just like, I really hate this. There's got to have been another way to have addressed this kind of Valera situation other than, and, and we yeah, definitely didn't that, need the you know. But they are kind of game. stressing at that point that there is no other way. So they've got to do this uncomfortable thing in order to to save everyone. So as 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 you know, repulsive as the action is, I can understand why it's there. I don't love it because it feels like that's a lot of kind of justifying, you know, behavior that shouldn't be allowed be allowed to fly, particularly in sort of stuff that, you know, me for you know being a sickler for the good guys and stuff. But particularly if you look at it as, you know, like I said, the allegory for things that were to come, you're not that far from kind of justifying Abu Ghraib and stuff like, well, you know, it's uncomfortable, but torture is the only way we're going to get answers. And it's like, yeah. Don't love that. <laughs> we had this I, conversation, I think, our last time together about... Um, how important it is that Starfleet be the one to take the moral high ground, but how so yeah. often they operate in that morally gray area. And Spock yeah. certainly is someone you wouldn't want to see take the low road, so to speak. However, yeah. we see him time and time again do, you know, disobey orders for 
the greater good. I just, I, I, I guess it's kind of a, a small relief in some way that Kirk orders him to do it, but at the same time, I don't imagine it's something Spock would ever do. And I have to believe he'd be more intelligent, you know, to, to realize there would have to be another way or something else that he could do other than like just literally physical assault. Like I said, the fact of the, the actual screaming in pain and stuff and her like uh, yeah, backing away, it's just, it's really, there's no two ways about it. It's, it's the worst scene in the film for me. And I just, but I think it actually plays into the whole human side of sport, which is why he has that conversation with Jim and his, you know, in his quarters, uh, you know, later on, but yeah. he, he is half human at that point. He's, he's, been mentor to Valeris and he obviously cares for her and he's angry yeah. that he's been betrayed so I'm, I'm putting it down to the fact that you know he didn't want to do it but he's also caught up in his inner turmoil as it were and it, and yeah. it was wrong uh, but that doesn't mean necessarily it was a mistake for the film it was supposed to be uncomfortable yeah Again, I just think there's better ways. You don't have to write your characters into those kinds of holes, and I think there's better ways. And yeah, well, I will say even the novelization basically goes out of its way to mention that um, Valeris was kind of so hurt by realizing she'd betrayed Spock and stuff that she basically opened her mind to him when it came to the mind meld, at least in the initial stages, because you know she she realized her her error of her ways, I guess. And I was like, you could easily have just done that. Just have it be that, you know, have Spock emphasize how much he trusted her and cared for her and everything, and then just have the guilt be overwhelming and then cause her to kind of come out with the answers to these things as opposed well, to having to... I don't I don't think that'd sell in that situation. I, don't, I, 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 really I actually think thought that, though, on my own because of how minimally distressed she looked afterwards. Hmm. Oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> Uh, I won't say any more about that. Like I said, I, I just I, I wanted it noted. That's not something I particularly like, and it's it's the one thing. As much as I love the movie, does it's one of two things along with the kind of Uhura thing that I would just remove personally or adapt into something completely different. Um, so yeah, I the think only, it was the worth talking that, about though. It's def. I mean, it's got to be mentioned, unfortunately, because it's a part of the movie, but it's not comfortable, and it kind of yeah, it sucks. Particularly, like I said, because it is Spock doing it, which is kind of. And it's, you know, it's on their last mission as well, which just, it leaves a really bad taste to leave the character with that kind of last action, especially in a movie where he's all about, like, solving the problems and giving hope for peace and everything. But again, that might just be my love of the character speaking, I suppose. No, I feel um, you. Ambassador <laughs> Spock. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I will go to the, the last note then. I won't, uh, I won't keep us hanging on that for much longer. The last note I have on the writing is just, what do you guys make of the ending? Because... I, I personally think just beautiful and so fitting the way that they end this movie um, in, in the last scenes. And again, I don't want to step on any toes. And Adrienne, you've been very quiet. So uh, are you available to tell us what you think of the yeah, very I end love, of the movie? I, I love the ending. I love all our, our folks being together and being happy. I'm glad that, that they did it that way. Of yeah. course, that's how every Star Trek movie ends, basically. But Not I quite in the was, same way. I mean, the way that yeah. this is, the sense of awe and like, We've been programmed, uh, we've been ordered to go back and, uh, you know, second start of the right straight on till morning. And Kirk's right, final log, it just, it, it gets me oh, emotional every time, you know. <laughs> says it's go, that they're turning over the Enterprise to a different crew. I, I'm just like, oh, yeah. The illusion awesome. to Next Generation is a huge fan of that show as right? well. The way that he's of like, course. <laughs> we'll be entrusting our legacy to a new 
a new crew and they'll go to all these places and we'll go when yeah. all man when all one has gone before yeah. oh touching and, yeah touching and beautiful yeah. yeah wonderful it is it's beautiful and quite fitting so uh, any thoughts on that from uh, from you then sandra <laughs> I thought the the conversation that they had um, and and just the turning over of everything and their discussion. Um, I'm trying to remember what they say at the very end, um, but they're just their discussion about, you know, that how things need to change and how they're mm. part of maybe been part of the problem. And then, of course, the very end where he changes. Um, where no man has gone before to where no yeah. one has gone before mm -hmm. and kind yeah. of turning it over to this new generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, the, obviously in universe, they're not alluding to the Enterprise D. It would be the Enterprise B. But I think us, you know, metatextually, we as the audience knew this was a reference to, okay, this is the last time you'll see this crew when now passing on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that show had already started, but it was very much we are now officially passing the torch. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a nice way to do it, I think, quite fitting and quite beautiful. Uh, DK, any thoughts from you on that? Uh, well, I'm, as I was saying, uh, everything from that, if I were human, to the sign-off, that's yeah. my favourite scene. Yeah, that's, and I do love the little touch as well that uh, Avengers Endgame later copied of the main cast's uh, signatures appearing on the screen. Yeah. And uh, Lower Decks copied it for humour value as well as I recall. <laughs> so, but, yeah. Uh, okay. Any uh, so the, yeah. Any thoughts on the, any of the writing then before I, I shuffle us along a bit? I just think it's really good in this one. Obviously, coming off the back of the previous one, it's uh, <laughs> so much of a step up. It's as I said, it's really not, yeah. yeah. There's there, yeah. there is there's no real lull in it. There's mm -mm. there's nothing that you know. It's got the odd scene that people might not like, but it doesn't drag it down. You know, going back to the yeah. previous one, it really flows yeah. well. Really flows. I see a lot of this in my conclusion, which is, uh, it's kind of, um, I feel vindicated in the way that I'm not just imagining this, so not biased to like the film, because I, I felt that much the same way. I was like, there's not really, it doesn't feel like at any point you're just like, oh, I've got to get through this scene to get to the next bit or whatever. Uh, it's all kind of cool and it all paces really well and everything, but yeah. Um, related like to that, them, then I want to move. That, I liked that um, in the beginning, uh, they besides having all of the quotes from Shakespeare, I read that he started the whole uh, movie with the exploding of Praxis. And that was just like the uh, lightning strike in the very beginning of Hamlet because it pulled everybody's attention in from the very beginning. Yeah. yeah. I haven't really mentioned that, but it was a fantastic way to start by just playing the musical um, overture, I guess, that, that opens the movie and then immediately fading from the music to just bang is such a shock and it really does wake you straight up into the, oh, okay, what's this <laughs> of the movie? Um, we've mentioned it before, but I think it's more effective than opening with just like a, a flyby of the ship and captain's log, blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, you, you immediately show the blowing up moon that gets the attention, then you cut to the ship kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, so I wanted to move us along to the next section, but I'm going to hand it over to you, DK, because I've been talking for way too long. So did you want to um, lead the discussion on the direction of the movie, if you don't mind? Yeah, I mean, you've already kind of, you know, it's already been kicked off, really, with that opening. So yeah. uh, <laughs> directing-wise, direct I think it's uh, another admirable, admirable job with regards to uh, 
to Nick Meyer. Obviously, uh, it wasn't to everybody's tastes in the in the cast and and behind the scenes. But you know, what do you guys think of that? I really did like the direction of it. I feel like a a lot of their own um, self direction came through the movie, and that may have had something to do with them kind of really getting the feeling that this was going to be their last movie together, the last you know TOS movie. Um, but they, I feel like they kind of directed themselves through a lot of it, through the humor, and um, they knew their characters very well by then. Um, other aspects of the direction as it pertained to people not in the crew and what was going around, I felt like it was very true to the series, um, always did, you know, what was going on in the background, what the extras were doing was always very appropriate and not odd. So I thought, you know, everything went very smoothly, but I wasn't really sure um, what his specific contributions were. That's fair enough. What about you, Mike? Yeah, similar. I think um, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Nicholas Mayer's uh, view of Starfleet because he has this very, I guess, militaristic view of yeah. it. And, uh a lot of that comes through in some of the dialogue, like mentioning if we are getting rid of the space stations and bases along the neutral zone, are we getting rid of Starfleet? And then having to point out, no, we're all about peaceful exploration, which is something that should go without saying for me. But at the same time, there is something undeniably cool about like little touches, like just how lived in the ship feels because every background character has a role and they're doing something. And, you know, that from the galley to, you know, the, the bridge, everyone has a function and it all seems to be ship shape, so to speak. So it kind of looks cool in that regard. Um, you know, having that level of military discipline, I suppose. Uh, and yeah, I think, as you said, the director in this one is kind of, he's working with actors, two of which at least have directed movies in this franchise, you know, so the, the acting in, in that regard, I think a lot of the actors are kind of doing their own thing. I, I do wonder how much direction Nick Mayer actually had to give the main cast. That, like Sandy was alluding to, they know the characters well enough anyway that oh, God, yeah. it seems like you could you could basically just be like, I'm going to focus on visuals and stuff, and I know you guys will nail whatever I give you, so just mm -hmm. do the performance thing. It's a second nature almost. Yeah, I think if, if if there were any problems, it's it's basically come down to the the actors know the characters to some extent better than Nick Meyer does. So, yeah. you know, so when he's directing them to do something that they don't want to do that isn't in character, such as you know the scene with the horror or the lines that they're given, you yeah. you just can't blame them for that. They've inhabited this role for so many years that yeah. uh, you kind of think, yeah, all right, Nick, you you're not doing yourself any favors here. Having said that. I do think it's directed incredibly well. And I do like the fact that like uh, Ratha Khan, to some extent, he, he goes against that, you know, when ships are facing each other, they always have to be on the set plane kind of thing that we, I think we, yeah. just, we spoke about this the other day in the animated review. Yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do like the fact that, you know, when they're battling each other, they are, it, it's, it does feel very much like a, yeah. Uh, a 3D situation. Well, even when you think about it, the actual solution to the problem is the bird of prey was underneath us, which seems like obvious, but it's like, how many times would people be like, oh, we didn't realize you could be above or below or whatever. So yeah, well, I mean, you know, for, for, you know, 20 odd years, everybody's been facing each other, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> it, it might get to the point where shit, <laughs> like right no. along the x-axis too exactly <laughs> they're not thinking three-dimensionally as spot would say 
exactly yeah. one thing that was cool and i just remembered it was um how they did the lack of universal translator scene in court how you know first mm. he was speaking klingon and how that transitioned to english which we've seen before of mm. course but it was just really cool here well i did i mentioned earlier that i really like uh the transitions but i also liked a lot of the interesting shots uh especially of christopher Plummer, because like how he's looking mm. up in the camera and he's like you guys did this to us and and i like that there's kind of um other than normal shot uh, angles to a lot of the the scenes and i loved how uh, we mentioned it early but how leonard nimoy really stepped into leadership with Spock, you know, he has to take charge big time, take charge of everything. And it's like that is huge, big deal because it's, you know, that what's going to happen he, in the he universe. He the Enterprise longer than Kirk does, if you think about it, in the runtime of the movie. <laughs> yeah, that he really steps into leadership. And I just, I liked how he, uh, they set that up. Yeah. Nice. One of the things that bugs me is uh, I would say it's more an editing problem than uh, a direction problem. But I noticed it when when I first watched it, because I'd seen some behind the scenes on that uh, making of video. So when they first end up on Rura Pente, and uh, that that scene with uh, in once your allegiance to the Brotherhood of Aliens, hmm. there's a where they come in, and he says, uh, you know, uh, he starts pushing Kirk around, and McCoy says he's definitely on about something, Jim. Yeah. The way it's edited. It's edited, so the audio is playing, but McCoy's mouth isn't moving because they've cut to a different uh, thing, and that always bugs me because I, when you saw when I saw the making of, it showed that scene as it was filmed, yeah. and then it's just really jarring now, and it has been ever since. You know, it's just a minor thing, minor, you know, one of my little OCD things. But yeah, that really bad, um, bad ADR. Like they asked him to re-record it, and they haven't synced it up properly. Yeah. But that's that's pretty much all I've got with regards to the uh, the the direction. Yeah, I don't have much. I'll, I'll quickly go through the stuff that I have, which is just to say I liked the direction of the anti gravity scene, the the sense of chaos that you actually get, which would be exactly how it would go. You know, the Klingons floating Very all over the place. Chaos. Just, uh, yeah, absolutely. But it's yeah, but it, there is the sense of like they can't fight back if you know what I mean. So they are. They're just bewildered as to what's going on. And uh, but no, I think there is a sense of like, you know, a, a, a kind of, you know, a chaos, I guess, to like not being able to see their face and just weapons fire randomly going off, somebody losing an arm, blood floating about everywhere. And it's running as reddish pink as ever. <laughs> Which is me. why the Klingons are compensating for something. They're bright pink, hot pink blood. <laughs> Which only ever was the case in this and now one episode of Lower Decks. But yeah. So, yeah I like that sort of scenes. I think the tenseness of the Rora Pente scenes is very well done. Um, shout out to W. Morgan Shepherd for a great little cameo role as the intendant of that uh, gulag. Yeah, <laughs> and, he uh, ate up his scenes, didn't he? He really did. Really. He's such a great, yeah. or was such a great character actor. Yeah, he really <laughs> shined in that role. Yeah. But, well, uh, or, or the opposite of shine if you're a Klingon. <laughs> he was intimidating, definitely. Um, and yeah, just I like the heroic moments at the end of saving the president and everything, but that's, you know, standard fare, I guess. And that's all of my direction. <laughs> I want to just uh, deal with the acting then, because I have quite a lot of notes about that. And, uh, you know, we can deal, do it bit by bit because we can deal with each character. First of all, Shatner. Any thoughts about uh, William Shatner from you? Uh, Sandy, we'll start with you because we haven't started with you for a while. 
I, I thought he was really good as some of my, all of my favorite uh, parts were kind of delivered by, by him. His, uh, he had these really pensive moments speaking to himself and those were like his, his character arc moving forward. Uh, but to the, in particular, um, right after the, um, right after the dinner, you know, when he's realizing his own part and why that didn't go so well and Romulan Ailes part. And then um, the other one I really liked was when he and McCoy were in the bunk beds on Ruerpente. And, um, you know, he's saying it never even occurred to me to take um, him at his word. Yeah. And um, uh, I thought those were so well acted. And his let them die, uh, finding out afterwards that, you know, he was it was meant to be softened. I'm actually glad that choice was made for I, it I not to be. Exactly the same. Yeah, I think yeah. I agree with Mayer on that one. I kind of like it hanging there because it shows the level of growth before the end of the movie that he's come from from that point. And plus, you know, he even gets it thrown back at him when Valera says, let them die, you said, even though she wasn't at that scene. But I guess we have to presume she saw footage or something, I guess. I don't know. Um, In yeah. general, though, yeah, just the uh, passionate an earnest way his lines were delivered um, and how he pulled off his small comedic parts. I just thought he, he did really well. Yeah, I really like the lifelong ambition line because I think I think that sums up Captain Kirk. It's more the way it was delivered. It, it came across as quite panto. And I think throughout oh, the majority of this film, Shatner gives a really kind of an understated performance. He really uh, does, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everybody yeah. accuses Shatner of, you know, scene chewing. And he can do that, yeah. But he is a bloody good actor when he mm -hmm. when it's necessary. And for the majority of this, he is a, that kind of calibre of actor. So when he drops to that, you know, gurning, must have been your lifelong ambition, it just comes across a little a little pantomime for me. Yeah, that's how I yeah. felt well, about that. It's not even supposed to be yeah. him, is it? But no. <laughs> right, but it's still him. Loved it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you love, love that scene? Yeah, I did. divided 50-50 on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 100% on all of them. Oh, that's funny. I thought it was funny that um, they rolled over McCoy when they were rolling around on the ground. Of course, that was funny. But I think Kirk, I like Kirk in the very, very beginning when he's confronting Spock about basically, mm. you know, how dare you speak for me about this? I, I thought that um, Shatner did well. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, DK? I just, as I said, I just think he, he gives it for, for the ninety nine percent of this film. He gives an incredibly understated performance, and I, I, I would, um, I would, I would kind of agree, but disagree. I don't think it's understated. I think it's actually standout good because I've noted a lot of lines where I was like, "This I'm isn't, you know, this isn't underplayed. It's actually really powerful." But it's like how I always say about kind of related to what you were saying. People mock Shatner's acting in his delivery but there are moments that hit you like a gut punch and one of them that i've always said is the kind of the end of star trek 3 when he realizes that david's been killed and it's like you cling on bastard you killed my son and it, with the actual pain that's in his voice and i get a lot of lines like that so um we already mentioned like the let them die or the log entry about not trusting klingons because of the loss of his uh, his son or this is such a really like you might not even have noticed this but the moment when Chang basically threatens to blow them out of the stars and they're firing, they're charging up their plasma disruptor thing or whatever. And Kirk just says, signal our surrender. And they all go, Captain? And he's like, we surrender! And it's just that sheer, like, 
Wow, <laughs> where did this yes. performance come from? <laughs> Moving to the next one, then. Obviously, we have to touch on we've we've done William Shatner as Kirk. What about Leonard Nimoy as Spock in this movie? Who wants to go first? I'm going to throw it open to you. <laughs> I'll go. Who do I? Uh, okay. <laughs> I I think it was uh, great. I love the really really serious Spock, uh, emotional Spock, um, be, because this was you know, basically he and his father, you know, plant had to go do this uh, to meet with them and, and everything. And I just think that uh, he did, he stood out in this one. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, what about you then, uh, DK? You still with us? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to just go. I mean, I know we're going to go from like Leonard onwards, but I've just got to say there isn't one member of the original cast here that doesn't knock it out of the park. I don't touch on all of them because we'd be here all day and effectively yeah, that's, said the same thing. Like, yeah, you know, I just think they're they've, great. <laughs> they've grown into their roles over, you know, 20 odd years before this film. And this is the one where it, I mean, yes, they've been great in, in pretty much most of the movies, but this is yeah. the one where, as we said earlier, you can trust them to inhabit the roles and they do. And you, to me, you can't second guess any of this because I just think each one of just, it's just a blinding performance from from them all. Yeah, and I'll get it out of the way now and just say that Nichelle Nichols, James Stewart, and Walter Koenig, the only criticism that I have is that they're not used enough. Because <laughs> right. what they do get is fantastic, and they yeah. knock every scene, as you said, out of the park that they are given. So yeah, you do about the But things. again, compare yeah, it to the previous movie, and it's like having their own half-hour series. <laughs> yeah, true. That's <laughs> a good point, actually. Uh, but no. So, what did you think generally, specifically about Spock's role in this movie, though? Because he's kind of he's he's grown a lot in these six movies. If you look on them as a whole, particularly more than anyone, perhaps. You know, he he's, has... been, he's been dead and back to life. You know? <laughs> yeah, and you know, I mean, you've got to think also as well that back then he was, you know, really good mates with Shatner. So that scene in his quarters where they're discussing about, you know. I jump in where angels feet are tread and all that kind of thing. I just think it, it's not necessarily just Spock and Kirk by this point. It's Nimoy and Shatner. Yeah. And yep. that comes through beautifully. And you just can't help but love this pairing. Definitely. DK, is it possible that we too, you and I, have grown so old and so inflexible oh. that we have outlived our usefulness? Would that constitute? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't crucify yourself, man. <laughs> I had to do. I wrote that down because I said that's such a, a powerful. And as you said, it's kind of it, it almost operates on the second level of is it the actors as well? And w when you look at the way like this, I, I did want to bring this up, even though it's it's only tangentially relevant. But when you look at the way pop culture was viewing them, I'm thinking specifically of you know the Simpsons, Star Trek Twelve, so very tired. Yeah. <laughs> to actually to actually kind of address that in this movie is like, are we? that joke are we too old for this now yeah but it, i mean it does take it head on it doesn't shy away yeah. from it. It, it just it, i mean to some extent they kind of did it in trek 2 as well where he says you know galloping around the cosmos is a game for the young and Uhura says what's that supposed to mean so yeah. since then you've had several sequels so you can kind of see why it was heading that way in pop, pop culture so for him yeah. to tackle it again head on and just say, look, yeah, we are aware of what's going on here. This is how we're going to address it. I do love that. Yeah, I agree as well. Um, so what, did I ask you, Sandy, on your thoughts on Nemoya Spock? Uh, I just really thought, um, you know, this was kind of 
his movie as much as Shatner's, as much as Shatner tended to ha headline anything that had to do with the original series. And yeah. I really liked how complex his character was and that he played um, the character very complex, even though he was championing uh, peace and trust, mm -hmm. he slapped that um, tracer on, on uh, yep. Shatner as he left. And he knew uh, really the reality of what they were facing. And um, I just thought just very complex acting uh, showed through what, you know, along with that character, that was really good. Absolutely. I only have one note other than what I've mentioned, because I've mentioned, like, I love the anger outburst. I don't love the, the Valera stuff. But like you, I like that he's kind of like on top of things and places the tracker and everything. Um, but the only other note that I have is kind of, it's kind of a beautiful summation of his journey as Spock when he speaks to Valeris and says, it's taken me a lifetime to learn. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. And I was like, that is such a perfect one-line summation of just what Spock has been heading towards for, at this point, decades, you know? And I was like, oh, it's, it's so beautiful. It's, I, I totally get it as well. And it's a shame that we don't see much more of this particularly more balanced Spock, I guess, where he's like, you know, you have to you have to admit that there's flaws in Vulcan and human and, and acknowledge both sides. And it's a nice way to address that. Especially coming off of the latest season of Strange New Worlds. Oh, completely. I mean, Strange New Worlds is doing wonders at building up the the before part of that. They're like, I'm going to try the Vulcan side of things. But I think the movies, I love that, like I said, that the movies are just Spock's journey from, you know, being given command to death, to rebirth, to full acceptance of everything that he is. <laughs> Um, but no, and while regardless. Kirk, it's just him getting demoted <laughs> over and Kirk's, over again. Well, Kirk's journey is, is Kirk's own journey. I mean, Kirk's journey is, you know, I'm not a diplomat. I'm not a bureaucrat. I'm not an office desk guy or whatever. I am captain of a starship. And I think as much as you may well scoff, I really do like that line in Generations when Kirk's like, don't let them take you off the bridge of a ship. When you're there, you make a difference. Oh, no, I think I get that's it. Kirk's journey is basically just you were where you were meant to be. <laughs> the whole time um but you have to you know accept the future as well you can't just be you know you, you can't just be lodged in the past but even this movie has moments of like you, you've got to be more flexible you know even at the trial when he's like yes at times i've you know went against orders or like out of space dock when he insists on valeris using thrusters even though it's supposed to be impulse only or the other way around whatever it is and i'm like this scene only exists to point out that like kirk's still a badass doesn't give a dang about orders or whatever um but yeah, it's just it, he is what he is, really, and he gets to be the the hero, I think, because he because he grows. Because it would be a completely different character if he was like the, I don't know, John Wayne that doesn't have a place in this growing world anymore. But the fact that he actually grows to accept, you know, things can change, and we have to live in this brave new world. I kind of like that. But anyway, I'm talking too much. So <laughs> no, I'll agree. Uh, though. Yeah, I agree. Fair enough. Uh, what do you guys make of the finally promoted Captain Sulu of the Excelsior, uh, played by George Takei? There's not much here, admittedly. There's more in the Voyager episode that he gets later, but what do you make of the little uh, appearance there? Uh, Sandy? Happy happy to see that he has his own command, as jarring as it is to see, though. Um, definitely yeah. see him as being more like he was doing a survey. He's definitely more the science and exploratory arm of Star Trek as opposed to, uh, excuse me, Starfleet as opposed to the militaristic one. Yeah. But it's like DK was saying, that sense of familiar. We kind of, we know the character enough that when we see him 
and even seeing that like Rand is his communications officer, we see them on their own ship and we just get, or I at least get a sense of like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just comfy and cozy. You, and you of are course familiar with them, it would stretch cred, you know, credibility to not have any of them move on at this point. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but I yeah. do, I will say, in terms of like um, particular impact, I do. It's so powerful when Captain Sulu. As much to the crew of the Enterprise, I owe you my thanks. Nice to see you in action one more time, Captain Kirk. Take care. I just love that exchange. It's so well acted between the two of them, especially considering they hate each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, sorry, Adrian, you were saying. Well, I I thought the the standout scene for me with him, besides you know how they set up the whole Praxis explosion, was when um, the. Of course, the fact that the trial is broadcast to everybody and mm. at the key scene when Sulu says, send to Commander Enterprise. We stand you know, to like assist. we're here to help you, but like he knows he's speaking to Spock. So, I mean, yeah. that's because he knows Completely. how everything would go. So I, I he played that integral part. I, I thought he did great. Oh, there's a lot there. I mean, in such a little amount, even, you know, fly the flyer apart. Because he's, you know, desperate to get back, or yeah, that's um, his family. Know, even even <laughs> by talking to us, you could be, you know, court-martialed. Ah, I can't understand, sir. You're breaking up. Is yeah, going, but that's our Sulu. Sulu. <laughs> <laughs> that's our yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. Uh, I'm very aware of time, so just any thoughts generally about any of the guest cast or anybody else that you wanted to to kind of bring up? Uh, DK, we'll start uh, with you. Plumber, obviously. If anybody's mm -hmm. going to be chewing the scenery in this, it's it's plumber. But it's never to the point of absurdity. You, I think you can you can bite. He, he he does go really far into the character, but you just get the impression the guy's having fun. Mm. Yeah, but not at the expense of the material. It's no. not like he's mocking Star Trek. He's just having fun with the role he's got. Yeah, um, fair enough. Um, I, I want to mention quickly David Warner as Gorkon because it always surprises me how little screen time he gets because his impact, I think, is throughout this film. And I've been a fan of him as an actor beyond, way beyond this role in, in many other things. But Definitely. I think this is, it's just incredible to me that he sells me on, like, it's a, a tough act to sell you on Gorkon as like a Klingon who for the first time is like, you know, got to be trustworthy and, and is out for peace. And I fully believe in him. And like you say, you can kind of, you can see why this character is so revered because of the mm -hmm. way he's played. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the difference between this character and like Gold Madrid and how utterly terrifying oh. and detestable that character is, okay. and then you tell me that's the same actor. Yeah, I'm just incredible. like, that guy was, that was talent. That was just mm -hmm. an incredible actor. You know? I agree. Yeah. Gold missing. Madrid. Wow. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Oh, completely missing. Yeah. I kind of have to bring it up because it is your current avatar. Adrian, but did you have any thoughts on Rosanna DeSoto as a droid talking about the guest cast? I actually do have a lot to say about her. I She has uh, some of my favorite lines in the whole thing, but um, I think we'll get to that later, right? Favorite character? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, okay. No problem. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to John Shuck. It was nice to see oh, yeah, the yeah. ambassador turn up again. And like Kirk, he kind of seemed to have many, I mean, obviously it wasn't blatant, he seemed to have an art because he was one of the ones applauding Kirk at the end. Mm, absolutely, yeah. There, there is a couple of minor things like that because there's also um, obviously Michael Dorn that we haven't mentioned. 
who I think does a surprisingly good job as like the lawyer wolf. And who was it? Oh yeah, Mark Leonard is in this. Believe it or not, um, <laughs> you really can take a drink when you uh, when you spot him because he gets one very brief scene. But it's good. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, again, underused. Um, so yeah, DK, do you want to lead us quickly through any special effects, music, and sound uh, thoughts? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I'll start off with the sound design. Do uh, does anyone have any notes with regards to sound design or the uh, the soundtrack? From what I can gather, I mean, I, I looked into it. He wanted Holst's entire suite for the film, but apparently it cost far too much in royalties and just could not be asked to edit it in. He then asked James Horner, who did, you know, obviously uh, Trek 2 and Trek 3, but Horner said his career had outgrown Star Trek by this point and so turned it down. He then went to Jerry Goldsmith, and Jerry Goldsmith said look at star trek 5 you can go screw yourself uh <laughs> so yeah he, he put out asking for uh, demo tapes to be submitted held auditions and uh, cliff idleman who up until then was unknown uh got the part because of his it kind of alluded towards holds the planet again with horner and goldsmith in there while still sounding fresh and original apparently so yeah I, I think it's my probably my least favorite of the movie soundtracks. And over Trek Four, Star Trek Four has moments. That first track that's meant to be based on Mars from the planets sounds exactly like the Batman theme by Danny Elfman. <laughs> it does have touches to it, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to mention that it was awesome. He's only twenty six, and I think that oh. the Rorapente escape scene when they're walking across the glacier. Uh, that music is just stunning. It's really haunting, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's really good stuff. There was one sound design choice that I thought was really interesting enough to write it down, and that was from the very beginning of the movie when um, they just, you know, finished their survey and the shockwave is coming towards them, and Sulu says, shields, and then, bap, when it hits the sound, when the when the sound wave hits the ship, it was um, very contrary to how when waves typically hit ships in Star Trek, where it's more of a, a slower process and not like a, a singular pop at them. So I thought that sound design choice was very interesting. Yeah, that scene in the cinema just blew you away. What about uh, special effects, anyone? Anybody got any notes on the, uh, the effects on this? Well, you guys already talked about the, yeah. the blood, uh, the Klingon blood, but I, I particularly like the part where with the Klingon blood where Gorkon is twirling and the blood is kind of trailing him as he's going in a circle. I just thought that was kind of cool. It's something I remember about the movie. I have one effect that I haven't mentioned yet that I wanted to note, which is I love how the front of the Bird of Prey becomes slightly visible as it's lit up by the firing plasma thing. Because it's like cloaked, obviously. The one, I think the only thing that doesn't impress me as much is that the bird of prey, as you mentioned it, when it explodes at the end, and I do get a kind of a model kit vibe from it. But apparently, they found it so good they just reused it again and again and again during the course of training. Been destroyed, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I will say you can get your drink ready because it does look impressive in 4K at least. Oh god. <laughs> So you've seen That's one bird of prey destroyed. You've seen them all. <laughs> Quite literally. Mm -hmm. That's funny. 
there we go. I suppose, yeah, there is there is hints of model kit, as you say. It doesn't put me off at any point. I mean, you know, I was raised in the diet of classic Doctor Who, so. <laughs> Fair enough. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah, any other thoughts, or can I move us to the, the little hit and miss bit that I like to do now? <laughs> no, we're good. Cool. I want to say, just to kind of fit into the Star Trek uh, podcast, uh, I just wanted to go around and ask anybody, everybody, sorry, for one hit and one miss from this movie. Um, so we'll go counterclockwise on my screen. So Adrienne, we'll come to you first and ask for one thing that you say is a hit. Okay, Chang representing the Klingons at trial. I I thought he was great. He was right on top of stuff. So I'm going to say that that's definitely my hit. Awesome. And uh, Sandra, what about you? Weaving in um, Shakespeare and those quotes and each of those quotes, thinking about their meaning, it's like one line gets to tell you paragraphs. Um, I thought that was a hit. Great. DK? Uh, I know it's probably should have mentioned in special effects, but I'm going to go with the destruction of Praxis. I mean, it was so good that pretty much every franchise copied it afterwards. Absolutely. Uh, and I just went with kind of, it's all linked, but effectively the way that the characterization uh, builds on like the world building and the way that we know these characters, as you've already said, I think that was a real hit the way that was um, used. So yeah, that would be mine. Um, so Adrian, what about one thing you'd say as a miss? Okay, we, we mentioned it a bit earlier. Kirk and Kirk talking about kissing each other to me was a miss, um, but there might be someone okay. else here that agrees with that. So I'm also going to say that I didn't really like my my guy Chekhov being so so negative and grouchy about the Klingons and their differences. Yeah. I wanted him to be more open-minded. Yeah, that makes sense. But he needed I mean, a bunch of extra lines. So, hey, what are you going to say? True. <laughs> Get something to do. Yeah. Sandy, what about you? Uhura not speaking Klingon was super bothersome to me. Yeah, fair enough. DK? Uh, same as Adrian. I was going to say, you know, Kirk meets Kirk. But uh, I'm going to go with the theatrical cut. Normally, when they cut scenes out, you know, and they add them back in later. It doesn't add a whole lot, but there's so much good stuff in there. And it adds so much to the, the plot that I think the theatrical cut, it's it's just a shame that they removed those scenes. I had exactly the same note. I said that one of my misses was that they cut scenes from the theatrical cut that had a point and a resonance, which was a shame. Um, but to give you something different, I will say, obviously, the invasive, like, Spock Valeris mind melt scene would be my miss. So um, we kind of touched on it there. So we'll briefly talk about it for hopefully not too long. The extended cut is the version that myself and DK watched. Uh, Adrienne and Sandy didn't have access to it because they only have crappy streaming, Paramount Plus. <laughs> Ooh, put the extended version on Paramount Plus. Um, but yeah, so DK, did you want to lead it? Because you, you know a lot about this. Did you want to tell us about the kind of additional scenes that we watched and to uh, what you thought of them? Yeah, uh, it extends the, the meeting in the president's office uh, by the introducing the character of Colonel West, who's played by uh, Rani Objonwa, who comes in and comes up with a plan to uh, to rescue, this is midway through the trial, it comes up with a plan to rescue Kirk and McCoy from uh, Rura Penthe. And it's, it's kind of uncomfortable because, you know, it, it does show those tendencies towards militaristic side of Starfleet that Maya goes for when the uh, the president says, you know, what are we going to do if this kicks off a war? And Wes says, you know, uses that pun, we'll cr clean their chronometers. Uh, yeah. It also introduces uh, the Romulan ambassador, who you, which weirdly yeah. enough, 
Yeah, you see in the trailer for the movie, but he wasn't in the theatrical cut. And he, like <laughs> the advocates on the Klingon and Federation side, he's kind of pushing for everybody to go to war, obviously, so the Romulans can just sit back and... He's uh, very two-faced, which I think probably fits for Romulans, but it's like... It, when the Klingon ambassador's in the room, he's like, I fully agree with the Klingon ambassador. And then when he leaves the room and Starfleet are like, we need to start this and it doesn't matter if it starts a war, we need to go in. And he's like, yeah, you need to strike now while you can't. Yeah. It's a week. I'm like, yeah. two-faced little shit. <laughs> yeah, there will never be a better time. And, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what to believe. <laughs> Shut up, you little shit. And, uh, exactly. <laughs> and when they do have that scene with Valeris later on on the bridge, because he's in that, scene now she obviously mentions him as being one of the conspirators along with chang and cartwright uh you've obviously got it's not in the it's not in the theatrical cut that you get flashes of them during the mind melody that's only in the extended cut it's not but in the cdi extended cut we have it didn't even have the flashes of them it just had her uh, her dialogue which is god knows how many there's probably like 25 versions like blade runner or something uh There's obviously the scene where they're inspecting the torpedo bays with uh, Scotty talking about uh, she didn't shed one tear. And Scott, you know, Spock saying, you know, they, they don't have tear. Not in the theatrical version? No. Really? Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> and then it comes into play again later on with the assassination attempt on the president where they beam down. The uh, You guys saw the Klingon being shot, didn't you? And in smashing through the window and landing onto the ground yes yeah, yeah but i i'd seen the other version once yeah and I, was, the, I remember being so confused going but i thought it was a klingon yeah in the ex, in the extent of klingon blood yeah wolf comes up and says this is not klingon blood and they pull the mask off and it's mm -hmm. the colonel west from the scene earlier west. yes yes it's yeah. old man smithers he was the ghost the whole time <laughs> i've seen there is a hint of the scooby-doo about it <laughs> Yeah, sorry, Adrian. Sorry, I didn't mean to stop I, you. There. I, I have seen multiple versions, and I, I really wish that we could just have access to them here, but we can't all have multiple bookshelves full of multiple versions of multiple movies of multiple series. <laughs> well, I mean, the theatrical and extended versions are on the same disc if you get the 4K set. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Insert Batman and Robin GIF. <laughs> I do have that saved because I knew I would use it again. Yeah. Um, fair enough, yeah. So any thoughts on the uh, on the extended cut uh, from you then, ladies, now that you know kind of the differences? Well, like I said, I wish we could, I wish they had it out here for yeah. us, you know, some sort of option yeah. on Paramount, and hopefully they'll they'll get their stuff together yeah. soon after they, yeah. you know. They didn't even release it on Blu-ray. Like I said, that was the frustration for me was when I bought yeah. the 10-film Blu-ray set. It's never yeah. been released on Blu-ray. You can only get it on DVD. Yeah, now, that okay. really pissed me off because they released the collector's editions on DVD in those silver slip cases, and I have mm -hmm. those. So when they brought it out on Blu-ray, I thought, oh, it'll be the extended version. No, you're just going to get the vanilla. Yeah, crappy. And it's crap that when they re-released them again along with the 4K, the sheer just Blu-ray set, and the Blu-rays that are in with the 4K set also don't have the extended version on. Yeah. Which is kind of like a bit crap, really. <laughs> but it's, it's paramount. Um, they know that they'll be able to release them later on, and mugs like right. us will end up forking out money for it. But yeah, with that done, then are we ready to move on to the audience interaction section? Because it's a whopper. <laughs> are we not doing character lines thing first? Oh, okay. Yeah, we normally do do that first, don't we? My mistake. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, we first of all, we'll jump into our favorite character moment and line from the movie. <laughs> 
Uh, Adrian, again, I'll go counterclockwise for no given reason other than I just look at you and there you were. Uh, so who's your favorite there character? I am. Okay. <laughs> My favorite character, I just can't get over her, is Azet Boer. I think she is just incredible. Um, to me, her Klingon, when she's just talking to her guys and before Chang is rude, um, that's the best. That's the best spoken Klingon. Her her lines where she's talking about um, how, you know, about the war and stuff. And um, I still think that um, my favorite is where she, um, I still think that's her Klingon is the best Klingon spoken language. But where uh, she says, um, we will not extradite the prisoners and you will make no attempts to rescue them. Mm-hmm. In a military operation, we would consider any attempt an act of war. I mean, that little pause nice. that Rosanna DeSoto gives is just so good. So I give it to her. Way to go, Azat Boar. I wish I had a, a action figure of you, but I could never find it. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> what about you, Sandy? Who's your favorite character? Uh, my favorite character in this is Spock. Um, I, just because he's my favorite all-around all character. I just couldn't have eyes for anybody else in this. Uh, one of my favorite lines of his is um, something we've already alluded to. Um, an ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And I just always like that, even when it's repeated earlier, I mean, excuse me, later in the Abrams films and uh, just really have always liked that line. But my yeah. favorite scene of his is uh, when um, actually something that looks uh, really dumb to have done, but when Varys um, shows Chekhov w- why they couldn't just vaporize or vaporize them, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that um, and, and she pulls out a, a gun and vaporizes a pot which was like totally unnecessary she could have just told him that but as the characters ran in to investigate what happened which uhura did it the dumbest like she came in front of the security guys instead of behind them but how spock just kind of grabbed each of them and folded them in as they arrived in the room uhura check off and then just started rolling his plan along Okay. Uh, what about you, DK? It's such a, a difficult one, this. It, it, it flits between Shatner as Kirk and uh, Nimoy as Spock, but I think, I think I'm think i going to have to go with Spock as well. It, it, the entire thing kind of rests on his shoulders. He kind of sets up the premise. He's the head of the, uh, the whodunit section, and, yeah, I just think, again, it all comes down to that scene between him and uh, Kirk in his quarters again for me, and yeah, I just, I, it's going to have to be Spock. Okay. Um, yeah, m- mine should have probably been Spock. Like I say, he's my favorite character in all of Trek. But for me, I think, unfortunately, the kind of mind meld thing just kind of spoils the the, the love of that character in this film. And in the end, I had to go with Kirk, which surprised even me, because I think, not quite aside from that fact of, of the kind of Spock, you know, not acquitting himself well, I think I love the way that Kirk actually shows growth in real time. Like, you actually see that in a way that it's rare that heroic characters get to do so that by the end of the film he criticizes himself at the start and you know points out how wrong he was i love that <laughs> it's a bit of depth so yeah kirk for me um and as i said Shatner's performance i think is very good 
Uh, so, what would be your favorite moment in the film, Adrienne? Okay, favorite moment. Um, <laughs> cry Havoc and Let Loose the Dogs of War. That's going to just be it. Spinning in, the <laughs> spinning in the chair and just thinking <laughs> he's got it all going on. And then, um, yeah, he doesn't have it all going on. Just, just what happens with him, how he stares at the camera when he sees the torpedo coming and everything. I just think that's great. So I'm going to give that whole, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because whenever I hear the Cry Havoc stuff, it's only ever in his voice. So like no matter who says it or if I think it or everything, it's only Christopher Plummer. So that would be the moment. What about you, Sandy? Who's your favorite uh, moment, sorry, in the, in the film? I um, think, uh, oddly, it's, um, not even much acting, but just their arrival on Rurapente. Um, mm. I liked that we were seeing more of the Star Trek world, that we were on um, an asteroid that had an atmosphere and all we learned about it, the just the prison scene. Um, I just, mm. even if kind of tropey, I just really liked that entire bit. Cool. And uh, what about you then, DK? Favorite moment? Uh, as heartbreaking as it is, it's it's got to be that, and it's also my favorite line: the uh, "If I were human, you know, heading captain, second star to the right, straight until morning." That entire scene, I just, I, it breaks my heart because I'm saying goodbye to these characters, but I love it. Yeah, that final captain's log is very emotional, but yeah, fair enough. Uh, my favorite moment is just the incredibly satisfying. Um, two-way attack on the revealed bird of prey with the Enterprise and Excelsior just firing torpedoes working together. I love that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. They gang up. They gang up on him. Yeah. I have yeah. to correct my Shakespeare. It is cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. So forgive, forgive oh, my little... Oh, I heard. I didn't even... <laughs> Oh, well, forgive my little slip up. Fair enough. Uh, so we've had your favorite line then, DK, uh, which would be what, Spock's If I Were Human? I think. Uh, it, pretty much that bit and... Second start of the run. And straight on till morning. Uh, Adrian, what would be your favorite line? Cry havoc! And let's slip the dogs of war! Fair enough. Sandy, what about you? <laughs> uh, my favorite line would have uh, uh, probably also been the ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. My favorite line, I'm, I'm just a big softy at heart, and it did bring a lump to my throat, but my favorite line is... You've restored my father's faith. And you've restored my son's. Aww. I love that little exchange. Yeah, that's a really <laughs> sweet moment. It is. Yeah. Yeah, because it's so chaotic like... before then. Nobody knows what's going on, and my Azat war is all confused. So, yeah. And it just, again, it, it builds on knowing what these characters have been through and having watched the, the, the movies, you know, particularly because I just, I, again, I get affected by the death of David in Star Trek 3. Um, but anyway, moving on to the next part. Uh, this will be time then to jump into our audience response sections. 
Incoming transmission. Um, it's probably going to be a fair while because we've got a whopper, as I say, of, a, of an audience response section. So just so that you're not listening to one voice droning on for the entire time, I have split up the audience response on this one. Uh, let me just say thank you so much to everyone who chimed in with your thoughts on this, particularly everybody in the Facebook groups. We simply would not have had time to get to everyone. So if, if I don't get to your response, I'm truly sorry I had to just cut it down to you know a selected few but i do appreciate you uh, responding and please keep watching keep listening and keep uh, interacting with us when i'm asking for audience response so uh, yeah we're gonna each take a little bit of the response that i was able to to gather and, and break down to uh i uh, let's see i'll probably start because why not and then we'll take it clockwise from there so that it can be dk then sandra then finish with adrienne uh, so yeah i will say all of this feedback comes from either facebook groups or a handful of it comes from uh, whatever the artist formerly known as Twitter is calling itself this week. Uh, but no, not that much from there, mainly Facebook. So again, I'll start and I'll say that Paul de Maria Manias says 4.5, second best Star Trek film, absolute classic. I should clarify, I asked what you thought of the movie and also what you would rate it out of five stars, uh, which is why I got that response. Uh, Donald Salisbury says... This is five out of five stars for me. This and First Contact are my top two, although Wrath of Khan is a nostalgic favorite as well. Uh, Nicholas Forrestal says, for me, Undiscovered Country and Wrath of Khan are my two favorite Kirk-era Star Trek movies. And Brian Stebb simply says, agreed. Uh, Rick Cowling says, it's good fun, but it's not perfect. Didn't elaborate, but okay. Uh, Lee Downey says, five out of five. Should have kept the deleted scenes because the theatrical kind of makes it seem like the Klingons did most of it. As a child of the Cold War, the allegory was on point and timely considering. Valeris's interrogation was necessarily uncomfortable and everything it brought up would be revisited post 9-11. Not touching that. <laughs> uh, Ryan Palmer just simply says 2.5 out of 5. Didn't really elaborate. Eggsy Trek Jedi times back in again after his uh, previous week uh, and says 5 plus stars. <laughs> um, Richard Allen Barker says, hailing frequencies open. I, Barker, Captain Richard Allen, commanding officer of the USS Conquest NFC 8406A, give the undiscovered country 5 stars. Christopher Plummer did a splendid job as Chang. Uh, Rosanna De Soto was also excellent as Azit Boer, Chang's daughter. I especially appreciated the final send-off by Captain James T. Kirk and the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Well done. Hailing frequencies closed. Uh, Kevin Carlson says, it's my third favourite Star Trek movie. After The Wrath of Khan and First Contact, I'd rate it 4 or 4.5 stars out of 5. For me, the reason I don't rate it as 5 stars is because of the scenes on Rora Penthe and the more miss-than-hit humour throughout the movie. Disagreement there, but okay, fair enough. Uh, so that's my uh, all of my uh, feedback that I've got, the extent of mine. So DK, well, I'll pass uh, pass over to you. Okay, first one I've got is at PM Martin eighteen sixty seven. I presume that's on Shitter. Uh, he says it's hands down the best of the original series films. The story straightforward without being boring or predictable. The tension builds in a very satisfying way. The cinematography is on point, and he's uppercase though, so he really believes that. Uh, the music is solid, and then he's put in, in brackets in my head right now. And Christopher Plummer. Now, over on Facebook, uh, Garak Mike Schmidt says, incredible film, and he's got the number seven. I'm, I'm guessing that's out of five. I don't know. Yeah, I think a few people did that, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Brian Dennison says, as a Klingon cosplayer, I loved it. Is is that Brian who was on last, last it, time? It, it shared his picture of his Klingon cosplay during the animated uh, reviews. Oh, nice one, Brian. Uh, Greg Cox says, my third favourite movie after Khan and the Whales. Mark Harris says, five stars, my favourite of the original series movies. Excellent send-off for the crew and an era. 
Justin Daniels, he says, when I watched it in theatres, I'd have told you 11 and a half out of five. Of course, I was 11 at the time. Also, it was just so much more interesting to me than Star Trek V. Join the club, dude. Uh, I was just really coming into my love for Star Trek at that point and the world's biggest TNG fan. My uncle, who loves Star Trek, insisted the originals were better, but to a kid, they were definitely not. I tell you at this point that there's no Star Trek I don't love, and like my kids, I don't pick favourites. I just like them all for different reasons. I will say that Justin did actually write like a three-page essay about the Undiscovered Country, but I had to cut it down to something palatable. But you will probably hear Justin on the podcast in future because I was genuinely impressed that he gave... Oh, that's who you were telling me about the other day. Yeah, looking forward to, uh, to speaking with you there, Justin. Uh, John Wheeler says excellent movie very good politics uh polemic everyone did it the federation the klingons the romulans but the enterprise sorted them out glenn savile says i'm not a fan of the star trek movies other than the wrath of khan and the reboots mostly watch them for nostalgia effect and uh mike said what puts you off and he says poor stories not a patch on the original series is that what you were talking who you were talking about earlier that was the one i brought up before recording yeah <laughs> uh, right uh Jerome Backer says, probably the best Trek movie ever made. Alex Patnick says, uh, Patrick Stewart was told to give it four stars. And then, uh, obviously, Mike chimed in with, by Gork on Disguise as a Cardassian. Uh, Jeremiah Sappingfield says, four out of five. Kenneth Thompson gives it a five. And Dave Hope rounds it off with, justice for Chancellor Gorkon. So, uh, yeah, over to you, Sandy. All right, I have several opinions here. The first one is from John Salcedo. He gives it a four out of five stars. Um, Davin Skillhorn, he gives it a six out of five stars. So another person that's just got it off the charts. Seems appropriate and it is that good was his reasoning for that. Field de Breer says uh, two and a half on a good day, uh, which just appalled and surprised um, us, but uh, didn't get much elaboration beyond that. I think we need a hot take award for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Douglas Nary Jr. says four and a half stars. The only thing keeping it from a five is the set decoration and Klingon costumes aren't quite up to the quality of the first three films. But given TNG was on the air at the time and they filmed it in a rush during that show hiatus using existing sets, it's understandable and still remarkable that Meyer was able to deliver a quality film for the original cast's final bows in time for the 25th anniversary. Uh, Raylan Lee Schluter II says, it's a safe 4.5 for me. I love the movie and I've watched it multiple times and it is still entertaining each time I watch. Was it the best of all time? No, but it's still a damn good and a fitting farewell to the OG cast. Derek John Alderson, on a scale of motion picture to first contact, I'd place it around Insurrection, which is <laughs> a subjective one there. I think Insurrection was mostly ill-received so i think he's uh, one of the 2.5 star guys <laughs> that's just a guess um paul spriggs uh says it was okay-ish i suppose he feels the fact that five was so awful it made this one look so much better uh matt link 
says a great conclusion to the original film series, not as epic as Wrath of Khan, but a great last adventure with the crew. The theme of post-Cold War mentality, fear of change, and the unknown, plus Sulu and the Excelsior. Good stuff. Uh, Thomas Labinick says, great send-off for the original crew, and he gives it a 4.5 out of 5 stars. And uh, that's all I have, too. Cool. I've just actually had a, a last bit, which I will mention because it's from a regular contributor. So um, Kenneth Sweeney, who you may know uh, has been on the podcast a few times, uh, has, simply says, it's a huge hit. The last 20 minutes are fantastic. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> Uh, that's comfortable spot podcast if you were curious. So yeah, thanks for that. And Adrienne, you're going to uh, round us off then with the the last bit of feedback. Okay, we've got Seknarf Tenrub saying it's five stars. Love this movie. Thomas Janik says my favorite of the classic cast. Absolutely love this movie. Jim Wood says five stars from me. My favorite Trek movie. Victoria Marino five out of five. My favorite Trek movie, love it. It has action, adventure, redemption, tie-in storyline, and the best of all, it has a good amount of humor. Uh, Ariel Vitali says, four out of five. The galley scene and the Ohura book scene still just rub me the wrong way, even after all these years. And then here's uh, Larry Jones, who gives it a one. And then some suspicious character named Michael Wilson reaches out and says, Larry, can I ask you why you didn't like it? So... Larry responds, I didn't like the story. I thought the original cast was past their prime. It was very forgettable to me. I think that's the hot take award. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to concur with that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sean Whalen says, Nicholas Meyer with some good ideas and some bad, making Uhura look like an idiot, distressing the sets so the ship looked used, let them die. But this is how the original cast should have ended all of them. There was absolutely no excuse for generations. Hmm. Ooh, that's a hot take for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then our own lovely Allison Rents says, confession, colon, I've only seen the first Trek movie. I know, I know I have failed as a Trekkie. Lol. <laughs> um, she's grounded. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Phil Halliwell says, five out of five. Best of the TOS movies regularly tussling with Wrath of Khan and First Contact for the top spot. And those are those are mine. That's it. Yeah, that seems to be the consensus, I think, that it's, mm -hmm. it's at least in the top three for pretty much everyone, apart from the odd, you know, hot take outlier there. So, uh, yeah. odd crazy person. <laughs> hey, every family has one every family has one <laughs> so we shall uh, we shall uh, see if if our little crew of reviewers here uh, match the consensus or are wildly out of uh, out of touch so is it so yeah uh, all that remains you'll be glad to know is for us to give our conclusion then and our scores out of five stars starfleet deltas etc uh shall we go to you adrian first for your conclusion and your score Okay, well, this is probably the Star Trek movie um, of the original series of which I have watched the most. I watched it a lot. I had the VHS cassette tapes uh, when I was living on the island of Crete, and I used to watch them, and uh, there was no internet back then. So it's one of my favorites. I, Adrian, are, are you secretly a super spy? You've been, like, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you, United States Navy. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give this a, a 4.3. I, I, it's just a great one, and I really love it. So um, that's my score. Cool. Uh, Sandra, Sandy, what about you? 
I really did like this movie a lot and it was so well-rounded for me. It had good acting, very poignant moments. Um, it had, it was very clear that, that the movie was saying something without saying something. And there were so many levels of that because I usually don't get a lot of those things, but it was done in such a way that we were, you know, led to this, you know, underlying meaning. I really like that. That boosted it a lot for me and that use of allegory and, and Shakespeare. And also it had good dialogue, which I feel like I'm very picky on actually. And, but the dialogue was really good. So for me, I gave it a uh, 4.5 out of five stars. Ooh, surprisingly rounded up for you, but okay. <laughs> uh, DK, what about you then? Matt? Okay, I've got, uh, this is the movie that Star Trek V should have been. We were waiting for the actual showdown promised in the Voyage Home, and finally this was it. A fantastic and at the time relevant premise, a multi-layered story, brilliant performances across the board, aliens, callbacks from previous movies and TV episodes, ship battles, and Iman. The gang couldn't have picked a better tale to go out with, and that ending oof, brings a lump to my throat every time. If I'm being honest, it isn't perfect. It's not quite as good as Wrath of Khan, in my opinion, but only in the same way that a lottery win is not quite as good as Wrath of Khan, in my opinion. <laughs> and I'm going to give it 4.9. Ooh. Ooh, wow, okay. That is, a uh, yeah, very surprising, but... Uh... Yeah, okay. I said um, just a fantastic movie, a truly fitting send-off to the iconic crew and both a wonderful representation of the world at the time it was made, as well as a frustratingly still timely theme and messaging. In other words, it's great science fiction doing what the genre does best. As I get older, I appreciate the underlying themes even more. Could there be a better summation of the famous Trek ideal than showing that even though it's scary watching the world change, it's better to embrace that than become bitter and twisted? Kirk grows so much, and it's astounding to me that there are people, especially Trek fans in this world, that don't get this key point. Aside from that, though, it's a perfectly paced film. I'd argue there isn't really a wasted minute, and it all flows along so smoothly. Every scene is a delight to live in rather than a stepping stone to something else. Its focus on the characters is commendable and so good, but not perfect. As mentioned, the treatment of Uhura is silly, and Spock's forced mind mouth leaves a very bad taste, even if we ignore the metaphorical implications. That said, there is just so much here that hits my heart and soul. I can quote huge chunks of the quality dialogue. Every single part is acted to perfection, and it even has time to occasionally be really funny. I can't say it's perfect for the reasons that I've said, but I really do think it's better than a 4.5 score. So I'm going to do something you'll almost never see me do and pull a Sandy on this one. And I said 4.7 out of 5. Do you know, so, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling a Sandy. Yeah, the, the ironic thing is, only Sandy gave us a rounded up score. <laughs> it just didn't even occur to me you couldn't even do that. <laughs> I like being a trendsetter, though. That's unique. The weird thing is, as well, that when you add that together and divide it by four to come up with an average, it comes to an exact average, which almost never happens. It's always like a long point number. So I can say that officially, according to our podcast review team here, Star Trek 60 Undiscovered Country gets 4.6 out of five on the nose on the bond of 4.6 so yeah can't really say this is a, a miss this is a huge hit obviously so yeah very good. hopefully you agree with us and hopefully you've enjoyed spending a little over two hours in our company if you're on the trek podcast and uh, however long the cut down version ends up on silver screen you can always catch our um 
information in the episode description, all of our link trees to find us on social media. There will be links there to help out with the ongoing SAG-AFTRA strikes. And uh, you can always donate to us via our coffee page uh, if you wanted to you know, contribute towards the cost of the podcast. Keep it running and make sure we're still going to be here if you've been enjoying it. And again, just do spread the word, like, subscribe, share with your friends, especially if they're Trekkies, because we seem to be a little bit less, uh, you know, Trek for Trek heavy than we, we are subscribers when it comes to overall film, which I suppose figures, but it'd be nice to have a bit more of a a track uh, representation so with all of that said and my rambling over and done with dk is there anything that you wanted to specifically plug before we go no just you know telling everybody to turn over for the uh, the upcoming cold classics episodes over on silver screen where uh, we've got some uh, cool guests looking at some i could say cool movies but that depends on your definition of cool movies and uh, yeah looking forward to seeing you over there awesome what about you sandy anywhere that you want to shout out not just yet, but do keep asking. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's genuine or just frustration. <laughs> I heard it afterwards. I heard how it sounded. No, um, DK and I discussed before. Um, I do want to look into doing something uh, around this time next year. So I, okay. I'll have an answer around then, I think. Fair enough. And uh, hmm. you can always join our Discord if you want to see, uh, find you know, Sandy and uh, Adrienne on there. They're always quite active. Only yes. nice people allowed, though. So, come over, <laughs> come over to the Discord. It's a fun place. Absolutely. And uh, so, Adrian, is that all that you want to shout? Or do you want to mention that's else? it? But nope, I do want to say, live long and prosper. Captain's log, star date ninety five twenty nine point one. This is the final cruise of the Starship Enterprise under my command. This ship and her history will shortly become the care of another crew. To them and their posterity will we commit our future. They will continue the voyages we have begun and journey to all the undiscovered countries boldly going where no man, where no one, has gone before. listening to the hit or miss star trek podcast hosted by michael wilson and dk created produced and edited by michael wilson additional material produced by dk music by timeless journey more information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey the hit or miss star trek podcast is based on an idea by michael wilson and will templar follow the podcast on instagram at home star trek podcast or look for the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening. <laughs>